I find it interesting that that anyone would discount this idea of an object being haunted. Um, I think it might be the most easily identifiable aspect of the paranormal. Ladies and gentlemen, we When you're in a house and you're being, you know, haunted, there's pounding on the walls or, or there's lights and there's people out of the corner of your eyes, you know, it's something that's very intimidating, but it's also something that's a little bit detached from you because, you know, it, it's the location that is the haunted thing. But when it's an object, you're not really kind of forced to ask yourself why this object is haunted. Servant, angry, doll, weird, boy, creepy. It's the badass haunted object of the paranormal. I mean, there's there's nothing else that we wrote about in this book that people make such a connection with as Robert the Doll. That to me shows that there there is something that's imprinted upon these objects that we deal with and everything that we come in contact with in our daily life, we're leaving a little bit of ourselves behind. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And this time on the program, in honor of Halloween, we are exploring an obscure aspect of the spirit world with our guests Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg, authors of the book Haunted Objects. And over the course of this conversation, we are going to examine thorny questions like what constitutes a haunted object versus merely a prop for a ghost, as well as how and why objects may get haunted. We're also going to hear a myriad of fantastic stories. So for the folks out there who like the stories, you are in for some fun. You are going to be hearing tales of haunted tools a seemingly possessed piece of demonic poster board, and, yes, the infamous and beloved Robert the Doll. We're also going to delve into tangential areas like psychometry and Ouija boards. Plus, there's even more, folks. The final half hour features a lively jam session where we discuss and deconstruct the field of ghost hunting. So we're not just covering haunted objects here on the show tonight. We're really taking another look at the ghost and ghost hunting phenomenon, something we very rarely return to on the show. But hey, it's the Halloween season, so you really got to get with it and do something kind of spooky. So in total, it is a rich blend of ghost stories and theories that embraces the spirit of the season as we delve into the world of haunted objects with Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg, please allow me to provide you with a little background on them. Chris Balzano is the founder and director of Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads, an online collection of legends and ghost stories from Massachusetts and the surrounding states. 
His writing has been featured in Haunted Times and Mystery Magazine, and he has been covered by the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the Standard Times, and Worcester Magazine. Chris is the author of several books about regional hauntings, including Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and Paranormal in the Freetown State Forest, and Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle, as well as the collection of true ghost stories, ghostly adventures, and the new how-to paranormal book, Picture Yourself Ghost Hunting. His website is www.masscrossroads.com. Pretty simple, all one word, masscrossroads.com. Check it out. And here is the bio on Tim Weisberg. Tim Weisberg created Spooky South Coast, along with Matt Costa in late 2005, seeking to combine an entertaining and interactive talk show format with the world of the paranormal. Tim is also the author of Ghosts of the South Coast, and co-author of Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf. He has been featured on the History Channel, the Travel Channel, the Discovery Channel, and Living TV. Tim is also the co-owner, along with Jeff Belanger, of Legend Trips, an event company focused on paranormal expeditions. A sports writer by trade, Tim also covers the Boston Celtics and the New England Patriots for the Standard Times. His website is www.spookysouthcoast.com. Pretty simple, all one word, spookysouthcoast.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 13th, 2012. Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg talking about haunted objects on BOA Audio Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7, and we got an exciting edition of the program here for you folks. I believe it's our first double guest interview of the season, and chances are very likely that you're going to be hearing this around the uh, Halloween season as well, so we're, we're trying to get into the Halloween mood here. We're welcoming back two old friends of the program, one who's making his first appearance on the show and one who's been on a couple of programs uh, in the past talking about our good buddy Chris Balzano, as well as his co-author Tim Weisberg, and they've, they've written the book Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf. And it's a very fascinating look at really, uh, it's kind of hard to put your finger on it, obviously haunted objects, but really sort of the overall milieu of, of the physical and how it ties into the spiritual. And I thought that was really interesting, because you hear so many ghost stories, but it was almost like, really a look at sort of the supporting player in the stories of these many ghost stories, which is like this mysterious object that keeps coming up in various ways in all these different stories. So I thought that was really interesting and a nice, fresh, unique take on the whole thing. So I'm excited to talk to them about the book and about all their various other projects and research as well. So welcome back to the show, Chris, and welcome to the program, Tim. Thank you very much for having me. Now, we, I think I had you on the program, I really uh, had you on way too long ago, Chris. Uh, I believe you talk about Dark Woods. Yep, yep. Yeah, okay. uh, we had some Bridgewater Triangle stuff, and then uh, we had a feature one for, the, uh, for Dark Woods. Absolutely, yeah, okay. So we did two episodes or one? I don't remember now. Uh, we did one episode of Dark Woods, and then we did uh, um, a few from uh, from uh, events uh, talking about uh, Bridgewater Triangle and things like that. Oh, I think I recall that event, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess we'll, we'll let's start out, Chris, just refresh people on your bio and background and, you know, what you've been up to, uh, you know, since we last heard from you on the program, because I think a lot of folks don't know that you've, you've 
fled the the Massachusetts area for the uh, sunny confines of Florida. Yeah, the, the triangle was uh, it was too much for me. I left it in the, in the good hands of Tim Weisberg and, and other people who are doing amazing things. Uh, um, you know, I started off kind of doing some regional things. I was amazed by um, these stories of Massachusetts that seemed to come from this one area um, called the Bridgewater Triangle in southeastern Massachusetts and into Rhode Island. And uh, so my first couple of books, Dark Woods, um, and then uh, Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle were about that. And, um, you know, I, I kind of evolved from there into writing some how-to books, um, picture yourself ghost hunting and picture yourself capturing ghosts on film. And we kind of, we kind of burnt out with the whole, uh, thing for a while, um, and, until I got this, um, proposal, you know, that the, the publishers approached me and wanted me to write a story about, um, about haunted objects. And this was kind of, you know, it's weird that the book is, is hitting now because this has been, I think about two years uh, in the making for, for Tim and I. Oh, wow. Um, probably a little more than that um, when we originally approached it. And it's interesting because so much has, has changed with the kind of landscape of haunted objects um, because they're, um, this was kind of almost pre-haunted uh, collector. And, and, and you know, uh, John Zaff has had his museum, but I'm not quite sure the, the show uh, had premiered yet. Um, he was actually one of the alternate writers for the project, even when I initially wasn't able to do it. And um, and it, it, it's interesting how you um, how you said that it it ended up being this kind of weird mixture of things because I think when Tim and I originally started working on it, our intention was to just kind of make a very easy read uh, haunted objects book, like tell some stories, um, maybe get into some famous cases and and but weighed much more heavily into people's stories with these haunted objects. And I think as we started to write it, um, this very natural thing, uh, organic thing happened where it was almost like you, we couldn't tell the story of um, some of these personal experiences without getting into some of the urban legends uh, that are attached to haunted objects, without getting into some of the um, famous cases that kind of are the, the touchstones for these and these kinds of hauntings, and and then even kind of beyond that, getting into, um, you know, in some ways a written debate on what is the difference between a haunted object and a possessed object. You know, what is the the nature of the paranormal, and why do so often in those stories do these haunted objects take a a, a kind of center, uh, a starring role in them? And so, you know, it was very good because for me, it, it kind of was a very, um, it was a it was a 180 a lot of ways from the these how-to tech books, and you know, I wanted to get back into kind of the heart of the story, what I like to call the heart of a haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a very refreshing because now I didn't have to worry about uh, EVPs. I didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, uh, orbs and, and trying to define what they were. Instead, I could just go with the story. And I think that um, Tim and I both found that same kind of path, like, well, wait a minute. If we're talking about this, we really should talk about, um, you know, cursed cars throughout history or, or, or mummies. Yeah. In the Titanic. And so it became very kind of this natural project for us that was a bigger landscape. Right, right. Because it opens up a whole, a whole realm of stuff to talk about. Now, Tim, obviously, uh, as at the beginning here, I said you're a good friend of the program, but you've actually never been on the show. I've been on your show a couple times talking about the extremely popular spooky South Coast. And, uh, it's great to finally be able to return the favor and have you on the show. I apologize it's taken so long. So, you know, why don't you introduce yourself to the BOA audio listeners and tell us a little bit about your background. All right, sure. Well, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's great to finally be here. And, and you know you're welcome back on our show anytime. Well, thank you. But uh, I, I got involved in the paranormal uh, as a teenager because uh, my aunt lived in a very haunted house, 
and that kind of piqued my interest. So I started doing some behind-the-scenes research, uh, and I, I kind of kept tabs on it uh, throughout the years. And I, I ended up becoming a sports writer. That's my actual job. And uh, I had a sports radio show on WBSM. And the program director said to me one day, hey, you know, we really like what you do. Would you like to have another show here? And I said, well, I'd really like to do something on the paranormal. And he kind of looked at me funny, and he said, well, when would you like to do it? I said, uh, Saturday nights at 10 o'clock. And he said, well, you know, we got nothing else going on at that time, so that works for me. So uh, that's how Spooky South Coast came to be, and that's why, you know, we're at the we're out at the time when most people are out having a good time on a Saturday night, but you know, we hang out in the AM station. And uh, from there, I, I started investigating because when we brought Matt Moniz onto the show, he said I couldn't just sit there and talk about these things. I had to get out there and experience them for myself. And I never thought I would be an investigator, but I kind of turned into one. And, you know, some people say I'm a pretty effective one. Uh, I, I think I kind of just still fumble my way through things. And that led to me exploring a lot of the spooky South Coast locations, uh, the actual places around the South Coast that are reported to be haunted. And I started putting all that together into my first book, Ghosts of the South Coast. So uh, it was, it, it's been kind of a circuitous route for me because, you know, uh, I'm back to uh, sitting there in haunted houses like I did when I was a teenager, but at least now, you know, people have a little bit more interest in what I have to say about it, whereas when I was a kid, they said, no, 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 that house isn't haunted, leave us alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, this, this I'm sure, you know, Chris and I have talked about this uh, in our drives to various uh, events in Massachusetts when he's in town, you know, just how weird this this explosion of ghost hunting has been in the last decade. Uh, what I thought was interesting, right from the get-go here, obviously I read the book uh, this afternoon. It's fantastic. And one thing that really stood out to me, and this is for Tim Weisberg, because it was in the acknowledgments, you say that the book allowed you to get your mind away from the need to prove the paranormal and back to just enjoying a good ghost story. I thought that was a really interesting observation and, and very um, – you know, self-reflective. Uh, so I guess extrapolate a little bit on that that feeling, I guess, that you had and, and how the book sort of changed that. Well, uh, this book kind of kicked off a whole uh, paradigm shift in my own mind of why I'm involved in this. Uh, I, originally, I wanted to go out there and duplicate the experiences that I had as a kid and, and to realize that it wasn't just, you know, I was having uh, whatever – rationale you want to put to it, whether it be, you know, something we can explain away, adolescence, any kind of, you know, crazy thought that might have gone through my head as a, as a teenager. And when I started having similar type experiences as an adult, I realized, okay, this stuff is real, this is legit, and there's no need for me to pr keep proving it to myself anymore. And I spent a few years trying to prove it to other people. And I realized that no matter what evidence I showed them, no matter what EVPs I played for them, no matter what haunted location I brought them to, you know, it really wasn't about me proving it to them. They had to have it happen for themselves on their own. So I was kind of looking for my place in the paranormal, I guess you could say. And when the book came up, it was a chance to kind of get back to the stories that I used to like to read as a kid, you know, the, the books that used to get me uh, jazzed up and used to get me to, to sit under the covers with a flashlight. But I realized I can't really tell those stories anymore. And just as as Chris was saying, you know, we're, that's that's not who we are. Uh, we we can't just sit there and spin yarns about ghosts because to us there is a bigger picture for it. And that's what was the great part about working on this book is I was able to start finally putting together all the nuts and bolts that I've been collecting over the years and start putting it together into one bigger, larger picture. Nice, nice, yeah. I think everybody who's in this for a while kind of reaches the conclusion that it's like, what's the 
you can't you can't prove it to people. This is people you just can't prove it to. Almost, mm-hmm. it's like it, it it can drive you mad. All <laughs> you know, I've seen people who've been in the field for a long, long time, and they're still trying to prove it. And it's like, how do you even? Why are you still doing that? <laughs> right. It's funny because I originally thought that um, paranormal investigators would hate this book. I mean, it really kind of goes in a lot of ways uh, counter to what they do, which is you know we're relying so much on theory, but we're also relying on first-hand accounts as opposed to trying to go out there and gather some evidence or back up what they're saying. In in most of the cases, we weren't able to get our hands physically on the object. We weren't able to conduct any experiments on the object, on most of them. Some of them we were. Um, and so I really thought that paranormal investigators, people who are uh, are much more into the, you know, trying to take an approach of debunking and, and proving and, and and examining things would, would hate the book because it really doesn't give them that. And, and I think as we're getting feedback from it, uh, those investigators are liking the book. And it's not just people that we know who are trying to be nice to us. I mean, these are people who are from across the country and they're, they're getting in touch with us saying how much they're enjoying the book and how much they like the book. Um, and it really, I think, goes back to just what Tim was talking about. I mean, I think that there is um, the spark for so much of this is not only personal experience, which is probably the biggest motivator for for investigators, but also those stories that you really liked that really kind of got you thinking. And so many of those ones that we read when we were younger or even the, the, the old TV shows, uh, In Search Of and, 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 uh, and, and Sighting, talked about those, those haunted objects. They talked about these things that kind of seemed to be the, the, what, the what the hauntings were in these houses were centered around. Um, and so we kind of grew up with them, and, and people are kind of rediscovering that through the book to some degree. And so it, it, it's able, we're able to kind of say, all right, for, you know, we're able to be storytellers for a little bit. And, and, um, you know, it, it really is when you get down to it, it, trying to prove that a ghost exists or a ghost doesn't exist doesn't do anything for the people who have the experiences who aren't investigators. Um, it really kind of goes, um, it, it almost in a lot of ways, uh, punches them in the face because they're saying, well, we can't prove it, therefore it didn't happen. Yeah. And I know I run into a lot of cases like that, and I'm sure Tim has, where there's a frustration from people who own a house or who have experiences because they've had other investigators come in and, uh, you know, certify their house as not haunted. And you can't really discredit what people experience. You can maybe try to find a natural reason for it. But if you can't do that, that doesn't mean that something's not happening. And I think this book gives a voice to a lot of those kinds of people. Yeah, absolutely. I can see how that would be upsetting to someone who's plagued by this kind of stuff. You know, because once that is ruled out, then they're left with no answers. Right. So. Or, you know, they're crazy. And, and, and it goes back to, and it's funny because in this age of kind of ghostly enlightenment, um, we've gone, we've gone the other way. So now people, it's okay to admit that you might have a ghost, but now you have to prove it. Um, and if you can't prove it, then, you know, you're, you're, you're unreachable or you you, you know, you're just as irrational, uh, in the eyes of some investigators as you were. 15, 20 years ago when you said you had a ghost and no one would listen to you. So it, it's it's comforting to know that there are people still out there, not just Tim and I, but other people out there who are willing to listen to those stories and, and take them at face value when you find that the source is credible, not just the, the evidence gathered there. Right. Well, I'll t- I mean, I'll tell you something that I've noticed lately, uh, and that's, you know, my my son's back in school. He's a third grader. You know, we're trying to find some books to read because he has to read for 20 minutes a night, trying to find some things that will interest him, going to the library and, and digging up some of the books that I read when I was his age. And uh, looking through, 
you know, their collection of ghost stories, which, by the way, he's not interested in at all. You know, <laughs> no kid really cares about what daddy does for work. But uh, <laughs> he's, they're looking through some of these, you know, ghost story books that are out there, the ones that we read when we were kids that got us amped up and got us into this. You start to realize almost every collection of ghost stories is written for, like, a fifth grader. You know, and it's whether you're an adult reading it or whatever, it's written for a fifth grader. And I think that we tried to consciously and subconsciously make this go a little bit beyond that. So you have to apply some critical thinking to the stories that are being told. You don't have to believe them all, but you have to, uh, you know, at least have a little bit more of an enlightened sense of what could be going on. And I think that's, if you looked at the books of today, not just our book, but other books that are out there today that are exploring this topic more deeply and put those side by side with those, you know, juvenile literature books about ghosts, you can see that is the shift right there of what we've seen over the last 10, 15 years. That's the most uh, physical example you can see. You know, here's what we thought of it 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Here's what we think of it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You you, you do have a very... Uh sort of sophisticated question in there in the I believe in the introduction where you say the trick is determining whether an item is haunted or just part of a haunting. I think Chris alluded to that earlier here in the conversation. It's interesting because I, I wonder if you ever really can, uh, unless it's like an extreme example, you know, like Robert the Doll, like, or maybe, you know, who knows, maybe that thing's just possessed. I don't know. But I guess you kind of make that point earlier too in this conversation about is something haunted or is it possessed? It's like there's a very nebulous sort of area to uh, to try and wrap your mind around. And I think we had to come up with uh, a few ground rules for for talking about that. And and so I, I in my mind, to me, a haunted item um, as opposed to an autumn item that's just involved in the haunting. Uh, and probably, you know, Tim Stomping Ground, the, the Lizzie Borden House is a great example how over the course of uh, our gathering stories about that location, for example, mm-hmm. um, there's an, uh, there's a Tim has a great experience with a clock in there, uh, where the clock uh, kind of slowed down and stopped uh, on command. Um, I have a story where I brought a, uh, a child xylophone in, uh, and, and it seemed to make noise. Uh, there, I collected a story in Ghost of the Visual Triangle of, I believe it was candlesticks turning around. Uh, those, those are, in, in the larger scope of things that are going on, you know, that's kind of, what whatever might be in that house is choosing to manipulate at that time. Right. Um, and yet, then we also have a story in the book, uh, which is part of like a much larger kind of narrative of this very strange and odd tale uh, of these kind of these you know not just Lizzie Bourne's murders, but some other ones, including uh, the Amityville case, where a specific book uh, within the Lizzie Borden house, which was a book written by the psychic Jackie Barrett becomes the focus of the haunting for more than just a moment, for, for, for you know, a little bit of time. Uh, and because it, it's, it's now, okay, now this book seems to be the haunted item within this big haunting, um, <laughs> let's focus on what that might mean. Um, and, 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 you know, that's probably, I think, one of the more compelling stories uh, in, this, in, the, in this book because it, it touches upon a lot of those questions of, is it a haunted item? Are these things coincidences? Are people haunted and just they seem to like things, and so those things kind of like take on a life of their own around them? Um, and then, of course, it, it just becomes this um, this kind of odyssey of uh, the second question, which is kind of attached to that, which is, is there a difference between an, a haunted item and a possessed item? 
and and so it, it's really kind of one of one of my more favorites, and not just because I'm the one that wrote it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's perplexing. It's perplexing, and then may, later on in the conversation we're here, we'll get into some of my, I, I I wouldn't say problems, but sort of my my hangups about ghost hunting and, and paranormal investigating, because I don't personally do any of that stuff, but right. I, I find it. I wonder about it, but we'll, we'll wait to get into that after we're, we're sort of done talking about some of the stories from the book, because that's part of why I was really excited about getting you guys on here, is because people love the stories, like you guys said, and uh, there's so many great stories in the book. How'd you even, I'm sure many of these have come to you, I mean, you guys share your own personal stories in the book, but I mean, how did you sort of go about getting your hands on all these different tales? We just put out the call. I mean, we wanted to hear people's stories. Some some of them have been passed to us, you know, over the course of time. And sometimes, you know, we hear these stories, we take them at face value, and we take them for the ghost that's there. And we don't really think about the fact that it could be the object that's haunted till later on. So we, we kind of sifted back through some of our archives and realized, you know, wait, wait a minute, Let, let's go a little bit beyond you know, just the fact that they're encountering, say, their grandfather or or, or some deceased relative or deceased friend and, and, and figure out, you know, is it the object that's haunted or is the object just the target of the haunting? And we were able to apply that to some stories that we knew. We were also able to take some new stories in from people uh, just by soliciting their information. And I find that uh, some of the best stories that we had actually came from people who are either paranormal investigators or at least have a, a functional knowledge of the paranormal, which I was not expecting at all. You know, I was th- thinking the best stories would come from people who don't really consider this topic in their lives. And, you know, they did have a pretty profound experience. I, I thought that the wonderment would be gone from those who deal in the paranormal. And it turned out to be quite the opposite. It was more like once they had something happen to them, they could understand the ramifications of it better. Yeah. Yeah, And I think there's also a level of intimacy with an item or an object as opposed to a location um, mm-hmm. because, you know, there might be some kind of, you know, it's a great classic urban legend uh, excuse for the paranormal that a tragedy has happened there and a soul is lost or has, has you know, has uh, something left to do in their in their life and, or in their afterlife before they can move on. And and these stories kind of see that urban legend. Um, to a, to a large degree, and it's kind of like when when you're in a house and you're being um, you know haunted, and the there's pounding on the walls, or or you know um, um, there's there's lights, and there's you're seeing things, and maybe seeing people out of the corner of your eyes. You know, it's something that's very intimidating, but it's also something that's a little bit detached from you because you know it, it's the location that that is that is the haunted thing. You know, it's the location that's kind of taken on this life of its own. But when it's an object, you're now really kind of forced to ask yourself why this object is haunted. So it, it, it kind of leads itself more to a backstory. And, lead, and that backstory oftentimes is, is, is some kind of connection to that object, which in, you know, in, in the moments can be very scary and can be very intimidating. But as things kind of reveal themselves, can become kind of... Um, uh, an object of sorrow and, and kind of a moment of, of really kind of empathy for a, someone who's died who, for one reason or another, is trying to make contact. Um, whereas in a location, it's kind of like I'm way too intimidated. It's way too encompassing in my life. It's kind of overwhelming to me. An object kind of leads to um, leads to a connection. And so we, we found really that in, in <laughs> that, that sparked, like Tim said, great word, wonderment uh, in people who, 
are in touch with the paranormal, people who investigate or people who, you know, uh, read a lot about paranormal books, but then also people who don't, who have that kind of one-time experience. And, and it's kind of like when you go into a room and you say, have you ever had a ghostly experience? A lot of times that first story that people tell you is about some kind of object that was haunted. Yeah. Just to clarify a little bit, I, when I was sort of alluding to these issues with um, with that whole thing, I really mean the issues with the actual practice, I guess you could say, of ghost hunting more than to the people. You know, I don't really have a problem with people, but to me it's like I find it difficult to sort of get to the bottom of things in this whole realm. And, and we'll get into that a little bit more later, but what I thought was interesting about the haunted objects is that they actually allow for something potentially that you can't really necessarily get with uh, most ghost stories or ghost investigations. And that's, there's a, there's a certain level in a lot of these stories of repeatability. There's a, there's a repeatability factor that, you know, is pretty intriguing, especially with regards to how you're kind of, uh, you know, at the whim of a, of a spirit if you're doing a ghost hunt. But if it's something like there's a story where the, Lady has the dress and, you know, she leaves the room and it's changed. She comes back and fixes it and it keeps repeating itself. And there's a story about like statues that get turned around. And it's like, there's a, there's a great opportunity to really dig into something where you, there's the repeatability that science demands in a way. Right. It's almost like, you know, we, we always say, well, we can't say the paranormal exists until we can prove it in a lab setting. And then you get people that say, well, let's build the lab setting in the haunted location. You know, but th- this is the opportunity to take that object that's supposedly harboring the spirit and be able to bring it to a place where observers can agree upon what's happening. But it is such a, a, a tightly wound relationship, though. You never know that uh, until you bring the object into your home, which I, I, I did with one of the book, one of the stories in the book. I actually brought the object into my house, and none of the things that happened when it was uh, returned, uh, that when it was originally in its location, none of that stuff happened in my house, but yet when it was returned to the house that it came from, all that stuff started kicking up again. So, you know, it's got to be that perfect uh, perfect relationship between the two for it to work out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so much of the paranormal is a perfect storm, um, which is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a mix of the personalities that are there, their desire or their at least openness to experience something, uh, weather conditions, environmental conditions, the power of, of whatever a ghost might be in that location. Um, so it is, you know, whereas we seem, it seems if you, if you watch television that there are ghosts that are very vivid around every single corner, um, you know, what might be a genuine haunting is, is a little like catching lightning in a bottle. Um, and so in some ways it's, it's uh, exactly like catching some kind of energy in a bottle. And so what we found is that oftentimes that these items move to someplace else, like Tim said, have no impact on the people that are there or the environments that are there, but then when they're moved back, they do. And then we also found another weird thing is that these objects oftentimes had a way of either kind of dissipating, uh, for one reason or another, the haunting seemed to die down, or in a lot of cases, the item disappeared. Um, the item almost kind of seemed to take a life of its own, and, and people who... Um, were experiencing stuff, no longer could produce the item, which is really hard if you're trying to get pictures of it. Yeah. Book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and I can say this because I know that the BOA audience is, is very sophisticated and, and it's miles above a lot of the, you know, the common folk that are absorbing the paranormal these days. But it's also quite possible that, and I'm saying this as somebody who's been physically accosted by a ghost, it's quite possible that it is all in our minds. 
it's quite possible that it is a product of our own brain function. And if that's the case, you know, if there's any slight disturbance in how that experience is experienced, then it can't be repeated. So, you know, if it is in the mind of the person who owns the object, bringing the object into my house is not going to make that happen unless it's also in my mind that it's going to happen. So uh, I, I don't like to get into too much of the, uh, you know, the theory with people when they're sharing me their stories. I don't want to kind of say to them, well, it could all be in your head. Right, But right. Uh, it, it is quite possible that it is all in people's heads. And, well, and again, as I say that, somebody who's experienced it firsthand. Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you for the kind words about the audience. I appreciate it. I'm sure they do as well. Um, I <laughs> no think we can kind of get into, we can kind of get into Robert, uh, the doll a little bit longer, but that's a perfect example of what happens with Robert because be he, uh, paranormal or not, people who, uh, meet him have paranormal experiences afterwards and always, uh, attribute it to Robert or they've got really bad luck or good luck afterwards and they attribute it to Robert. So there's something very valid about what Tim's saying. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like a double-edged sword because like what you're saying, Tim, is you, you say this to somebody, they may take offense or, you know, like the old thing about, oh, it's all in your head. But then it's like just because it originates from your mind doesn't make it any less fantastic. Like, exactly. So, I think it's you know, more interesting if it's all in your mind. Exactly. It's like look what you can do, <laughs> you know. So people who shouldn't be – afraid of that possibility and uh I, I do feel like that the paranormal sort of at least being more open to that now that maybe uh the whole attitude of like you're crazy is sort of moving away and now it's now it's like well it may actually be some condition that we don't know you know not condition but you know condition of the atmosphere we don't know about now i guess we'll we'll dive into some of these stories in the book because you know folks love the stories so uh one well it's so to me i obviously have not looked at the bridgewater triangle as extensively as you guys although i've looked at it pretty in depth because i live here in, in the state of massachusetts and you introduce and i presume that this is something that's come up lately or has been around in the underbelly for a while you kind of introduce the theory that the wampum belt of the wampanoag uh, which I may have mispronounced, but it was taken during the uh, King Philip's War. It was taken by the English and then sent uh, ostensibly to England, we think. We're not sure. But you kind of introduced the theory that maybe that's the, the source of all of this. Almost like not to be nah, – no, nah, I won't even say I was going to say like the Brady Bunch episode with the thing, but – that, oh no, that's I, well, we've referenced that I think several times okay. in our interview. I didn't want to come off as dis- disrespectful. Oh but. no, we, we we definitely roll with the tiki. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of the idea you guys are suggesting that you know the Native Americans there they were pretty much wiped out by the English and additionally disrespected by having their history stolen and, and it's been gone ever since and and thus the the weirdness of the Bridgewater Triangle. I guess I extrapolate a little bit on that that idea. Well, I mean, I think that and and. Tim at all, you've you've been uh, you've experienced the, the curse firsthand um, because I don't think that there's been a time that you and I have been together where we haven't explored the Bridgewater Triangle, be it at a conference or going out to an, uh, to look at some sites where something bad hasn't happened to us. So I've stopped uh, I've stopped a while ago allowing you in my car anywhere near. <laughs> the yeah, we've had two um, car car disasters. <laughs> we've actually had three. Um, but, but, uh, one of them you maybe just blanked out because it was so traumatic. But you know, <laughs> it's interesting because I think that there the, the the interesting things that have been going on, the the paranormal, unexplainable things that have been going on in the Bridgewater Triangle, have been going on there for longer than the wampum belt has been missing. But it almost seemed to take a "This is my part. This is your part." Stay out of my part and we'll be fine. 
Um, so if you take some place like the, um, the swamp, which, of course I'm, you know, I'm I'm an authority and I'm forgetting the name, Tim. The Hockamock Swamp. Thank you. The Hockamock Swamp. Take some place that that had a very negative reputation, but it was one of those things where it didn't stretch its fingers out all the time. Yeah. And it seemed to have uh, the Bridgewater Triangle seemed to have these bursts of odd things that would happen. Fast forward to King Philip's War and the taking of this wampum belt, which was really the oral history of the tribe. So as they would get together and they would pass down their history to the younger generation, they would literally hold their fingers over certain parts of this long belt, and they would tell the story of kind of what those beads represented as part of their history, and that's how the younger generations learned. Um, and the Sachemar always had it. And it was given up by King Philip uh, to his war general, Anawan, who was then captured. And the belt was taken from him and then, like you said, they think it went to England, but there's no record of it ever arriving, and where could it possibly be? Uh, since that time, there seems to be a much more aggressive attitude of the area of the Bridgewater Triangle towards Americans, towards, towards you know, the white settlers, and then the generations that have kind of followed. And it's really hard to tell whether, um, whether we're just noticing it more, but there does seem to be kind of a, a more aggressive approach. So it's not so much anymore this is mine, that's yours, stay there. It seems to be more of, it's all mine, you shouldn't be here, weird things are going to happen. And more importantly, which is something I, you know, it, when you start really looking at the Bridgewater Triangle, there weren't many reports, and of course we're looking at a very limited history, um, really passed down orally, there weren't as many experiences where weird things would find their way to the Triangle. Uh, it's kind of like bad things or unexplainable things would happen within the Triangle. But in more modern times, it seems that things like serial killers or cults or odd paranormal things that are happening in one part of the state find a home in the Bridgewater Triangle. And that, the theory we kind of put forth is in part due to this wampum belt being missed and that it's, some kind of balance has been broken and that returning the belt may very well put everything kind of back into its place the right way. Yeah. Um, but until that happens, not only are bad things going to happen, but bad things are going to find their way into this area. The sad part is I don't think they're ever going to find it just because it was like 300, 400 years ago, and it could be sitting like in a warehouse in England somewhere at this point. It's right yeah, next I mean, to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the going theory is right next to the Ark of the Covenant. It's frustrating because when you are, and there are, there are people who are doing, especially because I'm not there anymore, doing very good work uh, doing research, and it's really kind of one of those things where it's an onion. You just keep peeling and peeling and peeling, and you never, and everyone wants to know, from an outsider's perspective, everyone wants to know, well, why does this happen? What was the spark? And whereas I can't, and I've done a lot of research on it, I can't tell you what the spark of the entire thing is, why it might be this way, be it ley lines or be it vortexes or be it some kind of odd, you know, I've had people say that the giant ones or the ancient ones put their foot down and touched in, in, bridge, in the Bridgewater Triangle area. I can't bring it down to one single event or one possible reason, but I can tell you that post-belt, post-wampum belt, uh, the nature of what was going on there seems to have changed. So that's at least one of the kind of turning points of the area. Yeah. Well, we'll get into the, we'll get back into the Bridgewater Triangle because I want to hear this story about the, um, about this thing that happened to you, Chris, uh, the, the knives and shadow story. But, uh, oh, of before I get to that, Tell the story uh, here of Uncle Webb's tools, because I think this really sort of captures in, in, in the real essence, in a way, of, of haunted objects. I feel like yeah. you know, this really is the, the quintessential 
uh, tale in a way of what you know what I expect when I pick up the book. So I, I think that might really give people a taste of of some of the various uh, other stories that are in there. Yeah, it's, it's it's really kind of like you're saying. It's kind of like the 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 essence of the haunted item story. And the weird thing is that I first published a version of that story in my very first book before my pre Bridgewater Triangle books uh, called Ghostly Adventures. And since then, I've had several people approach me saying they wanted to, um, they wanted to turn it into a, a my ghost story uh, on television. They wanted to do this with it, and I've always kind of contacted the person uh, and said, you know, they want to do this. What do you think? And they've always said to me, no, we don't want to really talk about it anymore. Thank you <laughs> very much. Yeah. Um, and when I approached them because I was rewriting the story and I wanted to kind of take a different angle on it, um, <laughs> their response was, no. This has been enough. Never contact us again. Wow. Um, so, which is unusual, I think, because, you know, and, a, and there might be, because the story really deals with a lot of family dynamics. There might be some reason, uh, family-wide or family-wise that, that they don't want to talk about it anymore. But, you know, it's a very kind of, and it's a, it's a, I think it's a, a story that's close to a lot of people's hearts. They're a father and a son. They don't really get along. The father is kind of one personality. The son's another personality. The father's very hands-on. Uh, likes to do a lot of like you know uh, self home repair and all that kind of stuff. Uh, kind of has this prized set of tools. And anyone who's who's you know has one of those handy grandfathers or handy fathers knows what I'm talking about. That kind of everything has to be in the right place and everything has to be uh, the right item and 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 this does this and this does that. And even though they look very similar, they're they're unique. And the son wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and as the um, as the relationship became more estranged, they stopped talking. The father died. And he very specifically left these tools, even though they were strange, to his son, who wanted once again nothing to do with them because they were kind of a symbol of of why they had separated. And so they were given to his cousin. They were given to someone who was very close to the uncle and kind of enjoyed that part of, like, working with them. And as soon as those tools were brought to the house, uh, kind of all hell broke loose. It was very and, – and a lot of paranormal stories kind of take this, especially because we look at ghosts. Uh, in the rearview mirror, and we tell the story, so we see a natural kind of plot yeah. develop. But in this one, it was very—it was very natural. You didn't have to force it at all. You know, it, it started with very subtle things and, and lights and and shadows, and then it kind of evolved into a constant kind of manipulation of a lot of the, especially recording equipment in the house. Radios would go on and play Uncle Webb's favorite song, and so. The, 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 the nephew knew he was trying to communicate but didn't know what it was about uh, until kind of these <laughs> tools started appearing in different places and they started to kind of um, um, make themselves known as in like, I'm talking about this. You know, we, we think about ghosts, it's a very, we want to think that they can communicate with us. We have EVPs and things like that, but oftentimes the conversation, the meaning of what's going on is disjointed until finally, basically, they, they found the entire set of tools kind of set up in this large circle kind of saying, like, this is not yours. Get rid of it. Give it to him. And he was kind of eventually able to convince his, his cousin to kind of take these items. And, you know, as far as I know, there was some kind of peace gained by it. But like I said, when I talk to them now about it, it seems to be like, we don't want to talk about it. So there seems to be another element of it. I don't know whether it's the hauntings have continued or something else, but there definitely seems to be something still disjointed about that story. Well, I thought it was interesting. You make the point uh, that, in a sense, i got to give kudos to the ghost because he did a very good job of sort of getting the message across uh, <laughs> right, right. I mean, in the course of the story. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like paranormal charades oftentimes. We want to think they can go, 
you know, this is my thing, but they can't do that. And so you have to kind of read the signals. And and that goes into what Tim was talking before is that, you know, is some part of that conversation very physical and is some part of that conversation psychic where they can create things within your head that allows you to make those connections you might not be able to make if we were just kind of relying on things we could see and touch to tell us the story. And I was very impressed, too, that you guys both shared a lot of personal stories in the book. Uh, you know, it was, it was good to see that you didn't hold back on that kind of thing. I, although I guess as people who are well-versed in the psychic field, and I mean, excuse me, well-versed in the paranormal field, you've shared these stories uh, before in the past anyway. So it wasn't like there's some big revelation, I presume. But it was also a matter, too, of if we're going to have people share their personal stories with us, then we felt like we had to kind of put ourselves out on the line a little bit, too. Uh, and I, I know that with, you know, the, the main personal story that I shared, uh, that is something that I hadn't really gotten into uh, publicly before. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of discussion with my family about whether or not they wanted the story told. And finally, we, we did come to the conclusion that it, it is such a, a, a fantastic story. Overall, and I don't, I don't think that I did justice to uh, the entire circumstances of what happened because I basically try to put it through my own scope. But uh, if you are from this area and you remember the story from uh, about 10 years ago uh, when a girl jumped out of an attic window, third floor window in Randolph, and she lived, uh, that was my cousin. And that was the, the basis of that story. Yeah, I could tell it was a, a, obviously a deeply personal uh, story. So, I mean, like I said, kudos to you guys for going out there and putting it out there. I think that I'm the exact opposite in that. I was not very comfortable sharing personal experiences um, at all uh, leading into this, at least not in my um, my ghost story books. Um, I mean, I did a little bit of it in some of my how-to books because I was trying to, you know, make a point about something or kind of get an introduction to an idea I was talking about. But I always felt that there was uh, – I couldn't tell those stories because, um, you know, it sounds like, and this is what happened to me. Um, a, because when I read those kind of stories from other people, I often say, okay, you're making it about you, and it's not about you. It's about the ghost, and it's about the people. Um, but the other part of it was I didn't want to impact my own credibility Yeah. Um, because then all of a sudden it becomes, oh, so your story is your story. Okay, so now I'm supposed to believe you. And there's a suspension of disbelief that can't happen. Um, and so a few times that I've shared those stories, I've always kind of, fudged a little bit and made it kind of third person and made the character Chris. Uh, and there's a, a story about my parents and, and, and a house that I used to live in uh, in my book, Ghostly Adventures, and I just, I just use their names. I don't say they're my parents. Um, so it was one of those things that I was always uncomfortable doing that, but I thought that the stories that Tim and I were going to share were really good connective tissue. Um, and it was one of those things where I have had those experiences happen and I don't think even Tim knew I had had some of those things happen because I always wanted to maintain that credibility and also that detached part of being a reporter of things that are going on, that I'm reporting what other people happen. Once you start getting involved, it's kind of like, you know, no one wants to hear your sports story. They want to hear the sports, the famous person's sports story or the, the, the one that's kind of detached from you. And so, like Tim said, there were, there were some people who didn't want me to share things, my wife, um, <laughs> or didn't want to know them at least, especially. Um, that were happening in her house without her knowing. Um, so it, it was, it was, um, it was something I wanted to do, but I wanted to do it in the right project. And so this kind of gave me the voice for that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Tim's story is kind of it, it's a bit unsettling, but also 
provides like the sense of closure in a way because you know your grandparents died and you, you took your grandfather's chair and kind of had these these visions and, and saw him and I feel like it kind of had like a sense of closure to it even though you got a little scared there at the end with the flamingo people are listening now they have no idea what I'm talking about but you got to go out and pick up the book folks to to get a full appreciation of this and um, but Chris's stories they were a little more <laughs> they're a little more troubling they they all seem to revolve around like really sort of unsettling situations. So I thought that was kind of uh, an interesting take on things. Have you had any unsettling <laughs> experiences, Tim, or are yours mostly uplifting? Yeah, mine are mostly just uh, you know the, the experiences that I've had, at least especially in regards to uh, my family, because that seems to be the most uh, connection that I have uh, in the paranormal. They, they've they've always been kind of just reaffirming. You know, kind of just letting you know that they're there type of situations. Uh, all my scary experiences seem to happen when I'm uh, under the guise of investigating. And uh, I can't be scared, you know, when I have to keep on the brave face. And I've actually found that I, I don't get scared by it. It's actually almost humorous to me when, when ghosts think that they can hurt me. Oh, don't say that kind of thing. What are you, crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't mind tempting fate a little bit. <laughs> and uh, now another story... In the book is uh, this one of the Lady of the Lake, which I thought was interesting um, because it's, again, it's sort of like you think about these ghosts, but in these in the story here, in Haunted Objects, a lot of times these objects are like moving around and stuff and, and just sort of, you almost wonder, like, they're very rarely seen moving, but then they, they move and they almost, they seem to defy uh, obviously, they defy, you know, science and logic and all that. We're talking about the paranormal, but they almost defy even, like, laws of physics if there was an invisible person there. You know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, the book's in one room. A few minutes later, it's up in a whole different place beyond where it could even be put. So, and what, what's interesting, too, is going back to the idea of the personal stories, too. Uh, when Chris was sharing this story with me during the writing process, you know, it just became another example of where he became involved in the story without uh, even meaning to be. That's that's what I found the most fascinating about it. Well, Chris, tell tell the story, and then uh, I have a question here about about something you say at the end, which is what what uh, Tim is talking about. So we'll, we'll kind of set them up there. But tell tell the story for folks at home who who like a good uh, spooky tale. Sure. Uh, I, there was there's an investigator, um, uh, Nancy. I always get her name wrong. I think it's Panetta. Um, who investigates in the Tampa area, which is near where I am now. And, and, you know, we had, we had met a few times and, and she said, I, I said, she said, I have a really good, you know, ghost story, like a good haunted item story. And so there's this, um, place that she investigates, uh, in that area of Florida. And the first time she went there, I believe, she, um, on her nightstand, there was like a bed and breakfast kind of place, like a hotel. Um, there was a book, and it was The Lady of the Lake, and she mistakenly thought it was about, like, uh, King Arthur and Excalibur and all that kind of good stuff. And the woman said, oh, well, you can have it. And she's like, well, you know, that's a, that's a, or she didn't say she could have it, but she's like, oh, you should, you should read that book. And so she was like, okay, this is, you know, kind of an interesting thing. And she kind of put it back on the nightstand, um, and they continued investigating. And it seemed that no matter where they went in the house that night investigating, uh, the book seemed to find its way there. Um, and at one point, uh, it was on the ceiling fan. <laughs> so, I mean, you're talking, you know, Florida high ceiling. It was actually, like, way above all their heads on the ceiling fan. And so this book seemed to kind of be calling out to her and saying, you know, take me, take me, or at least read me, read me. Or whatever the, the ghost was that was attached to this book um, seemed to, some for some reason, connect with Nancy. And 
So, you know, they kind of packed up all their stuff. They went home, and the book was in her bag. And no one had kind of placed it there. The woman who owned the house went, no, we, you know, didn't even notice it was missing. We definitely didn't put it in with your stuff. And this book is kind of, once again, kind of taking a life in her own house. It appears and disappears. It seems it will. Uh, she's trying to bring it on investigations as kind of a spark uh, for some paranormal activity that's going on. Uh, and oftentimes it works in that role. So it's really one of these weird stories of no matter where she tried to, and she wasn't trying to get rid of it, but no matter where she went away from it, it was like, no, I'm yours now. We are destined to be together in some kind of weird way. And then until finally it became her, her own item, her own book. Yeah, it's strange. It's, it's, it's bizarre. And like Tim was saying, you're, you're connected in a way because you then found a copy of the book, uh, of the same printing of the same year and everything. Essentially, you could say a duplicate copy of yeah. the book. And it's weird that, that her and I have had this kind of odd relationship of revolving around things. You know, we met when I was going to get some material from Spooky South Coast that she had when I was flying back for uh, the Monster Match event a few years ago. And so we met each other for the first time that way, and she was giving me these things back. Um, except and, for the banner. We have to point that out. Except for the banner. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, in talking... One of the things I wanted to explore was, you know, at that time, uh, was the, the, which I just randomly picked up a book, didn't even know it was about Florida, um, was the Flight 401, which is, I had known about the case. And she's like, that's really interesting. I've been actively investigating that, talking to people who were involved that are now free to talk. And it was really just one of this weird thing. And, and we were having conversation and the person, she was working, she was working at a restaurant and I was eating at the restaurant. Um, the person behind us kind of happened to hear some of the things where they were saying. And he's like, I am, one of the people who was on the ground during, and Tim Benal is going to help me here, the famous case in England of UFOs. Oh, Bentwaters. Bentwaters, yes. Yeah, so I know it's with a B. Um, just happened to randomly be someone who was at that site when that was going on, in the booth next to us started talking. And it's, it was this whole weird thing, and her and I have kind of revolved around this. And then as she's telling the story, I'm like, wait a minute. I have that book. And so I went into my bookcase, and there it is. Say, and it just isn't like pick going to you know Amazon or some other online thing, or going to Barnes and Noble and picking up haunted items. This is a book that the, the this printing uh, is in 1895, I believe, or 1896. So we're talking; it's over a hundred years old. We both have a printing of the same exact book, the same year, the same kind of uh, the same press created it um, at the same time. And so it's really weird. And I've had that for years, and it's, so it's really weird that you know as these things have come on. Her and I seem to be connected that way. That seems to be kind of this almost campfire nature that haunted objects have sometimes. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book, now you said this was a, a, a two-year project, so maybe there's an, uh, I guess I'm looking for an update. You said your next test was to bring the book, your copy of the book, to the house to see if it generates any activity or anything. Have you done that yet? And then I guess what's your plan when you go about doing that? You know, I think I'd probably have a better uh, a chance of having that happen if I gave it to her and got the two books together. <laughs> um, <laughs> only because I don't do a lot of active investigating anymore, especially since I moved to Florida. But, you know, it, it, it's something that I'm definitely planning on doing, you know, if, when I can actually kind of have a moment to connect with those people. Although, if I'm not mistaken, I think the house was sold and sold again. Uh, uh, if I remember my, my Ghost Village news editor duties a few, uh, maybe a, a little over a year ago. So I'm not even sure if they're open to investigators anymore. Yeah. You know, you know what I was just thinking too, Chris, is I was thinking that eventually someday we're going to find a cardboard box, and in that box will be our spooky South Coast banner and King Philip's wampum belt. They'll just be there. <laughs> and, and the world will be right again. And on top of it, because at this conference is the first time that I met Robert the Doll, so Robert the Doll will be sitting on top of the box when we eventually find it. 
Ah, Robert did it. Let's talk a little bit about Robert the doll. I find it fascinating and amusing that he is that that even I'm doing it now. That he he's referred to as like a person. That that I've, right. like I've heard you call him Robert several times now, and it's like it's not an it, it's a him. And right. I find that it's it's he he really does seem to have this sort of weird anthropomorphized persona, if you will. Like 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 people really genuinely seem to feel like this is a entity of some kind. It's not just uh, an animate object. Yeah, you and don't re- say I saw him. You say I met Robert the doll. Right, right, right. Yeah, he is the star of the book. That's that's for sure. Everybody when they get the book, they want to open it up and and they're like, I know Robert the doll must be in here somewhere. And it seems to be everybody's favorite chapter. Right, right. I mean, I, I mentioned the Uncle Webb's tools as like the, the 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 essence of haunted objects, but and I think I I inadvertently called it the quintessential haunted object story. But obviously, Robert the Doll seems to be the the ultimate haunted <laughs> object story. And a lot of people have heard the story. I guess uh, one of you guys feel free to sort of just give us a thumbnail, recount it. And um, before you do, though, I thought it was interesting. I'll sort of start the story, because at the beginning of the story, I was just like, that's just weird. The servant lady, she's fired by the father in this family, and to show there's no hard feelings, quote-unquote, she gives the son the doll named Robert, and uh, the father's named Robert, the son's named Robert, the doll's named Robert. And oddly, weirdly, bizarrely, uh, hilariously enough, the, the son, whose name is Robert, changes his name to Eugene so that the doll can keep the name Robert, which is like, what, what is, what is that all about? What are you doing? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But then he, he, it sounds like he becomes super attached to this thing and carries it around his whole life and everything. So obviously there was more going on between him and the doll than, than maybe I imagined. But isn't that kind of weird? Didn't you think that was kind of odd? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that there is the, the Robert the doll story, which parts of it may or may not be true. Um, and then there's kind of the the media and the the um, the paranormal explosion around him, and so there's Robert seems to be Robert and Eugene's relationship seems to be odd, and there's a lot of confusion over whether she made the doll and things went weird, and so that's why she was fired, or whether she gave it as a going away present, whatever it was. The doll, uh, you know, servant angry, doll weird, boy creepy. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly kind of it. Weird attachment. And what starts happening is they start hearing two voices uh, when he's playing. Uh, one which they feel, his, his parents and kind of other people observe, is not his voice. Uh, and then things start happening that are, you know, he'll be in one end of the house, the doll will be in the other, and something will crash. Or, you know, he'll be with the doll, the doll will do, you know, something bad will happen, and, and the famous line is, you know, Robert did it. Um, and so he really, you know, whether it's, and that's a great example of the, the kind of thought form process that Tim was talking about earlier. You know, did he put kind of all the bad parts of himself in this doll so that he could kind of have this, this excuse for the things that he was doing? It wasn't him. It was that other side of himself, the doll. Regardless, it, it, he, he keeps it, uh, he keeps it up until he's married even, uh, until his wife eventually makes him store it being, cause she, starts experiencing the same things, you know, two different people. He's talking to the dolls in two different voices. Uh, and it's kind of left in an attic and forgotten about. And so people move in, and they give it to their daughter. And if you see Robert the doll, whether you kind of go online and look at some pictures or you've experienced it before, it ain't a cute doll. <laughs> you know, it's not a warm, cuddly. It's kind of this creepy, faceless, weird, uh, beady-eyed, almost like 
sock puppet type thing, like stuffed sock puppet, you know, in a sailor's outfit. Yeah, it's um, creepy. And and it's you know it, the the things kind of continue when this woman gets it uh, and gives it to, or when the family gets it and they give it to the daughter. Uh, only it seems to be a little bit more aggressive towards her, and it seems to, while not attack her, seems to intentionally try to um, intimidate her. And so she sees the doll standing up. She sees the doll walk around the room. She hears the doll when she's trying to sleep. Um, the people, you know, will will have the doll. They'll see the doll. They'll note the doll. They'll go into a different room. They'll come back, and the doll will be facing a different way. Uh, or the doll will no longer be in the chair. It'll be kind of like thrown on the ground when there was no one there to do it. And so it's eventually given to this museum who puts it in this glass case, and it becomes this really, like, and anyone who's been in Key West or knows anything about Key West, it's a very bohemian, very, you know, it, it is the um, the perfect uh, in America piratey spirit, you know, go out and be artists and paint coconuts kind of place. And within that context, this doll is still a superstar. Um, businesses revolve around it. Uh, I was able to take a whole bunch of photos in the gift shop, which is kind of like the main, this main big store in the, in the center of, of Key West, and, and there's a whole section where you can find pretty much anything with Robert's face on it. Um, and the tour that I went on, because now I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm here. I was here for my wedding, there for my wedding anniversary. I'm like, oh, I want to experience Robert's doll again. So I'd already met him, like I said, in Tampa. And so we went on this tour, and, and the guy is telling me, we do more business than any other tour because we're the only one that's allowed to go to Robert. And people are dying for Robert. And what I saw when I was there, which was I had, I had seen that during the conference. I had seen people kind of um, in this room full of paranormal superstars really be drawn to this doll. And I think I took more pictures of Robert that day than I did for the book. But what I saw were a, a group of people who thought the paranormal was cool and wanted to mess around with it, you know, in a very fun way. Um, and Robert was kind of their way of doing that. And, you know, they all crept around. And as they're, you know, as the tour is going on, as they're seeing Robert, they're telling their own ghost stories. They're completely mesmerized by him, snapping pictures. And the environment that he's in is great. You know, I, I wrote a book called, you know, Picture Yourself Capturing Ghosts on Film. It is the worst environment to possibly take a ghost picture in. It's, it's lit in this very weird way. He's in glass. It's an old, dusty kind of place. I mean, it really is like every excuse you can have for a fake ghost photo is in that little room. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the wall behind him and kind of surrounding him is covered with letters to Robert that something happened very positive when they uh, after they saw Robert because they followed Robert's rules. Robert's rules are you say a hello to him, you ask if you can take a picture, you thank him for the picture after you've taken it, and then you... You say goodbye to him and you leave. And if you do those things, Robert will kind of grant you happiness and grant you good fortune. If you don't do it, not only will your picture not come out, but bad things will happen to you. And so there are as many um, letters of apology to Robert on this wall as there are things to thank. So it's like, as soon as I left you, I went back to the hotel and my computer crashed. And I lost my laptop, my you know $3,000 laptop. Um, or we got into a car accident, like literally right after we left you. Um, and so people have kind of, and, and in my later years now, I've, uh, especially after kind of doing some of those how-to books, I've become as fascinated with paranormal investigators as I am with the paranormal. And so it was really interesting to see kind of this thing, while these people weren't investigators, to see this thing play out of, wow, these are people who are out for a night of touching the paranormal, and here seems to be the perfect kind of magnet for them, the perfect excuse 
but also the perfect thing for them to kind of hover around and be and embrace embrace that part of themselves that has a need for ghosts. So it's this really kind of ghostly, interesting ghost story that also has a lot of sociological uh, and anthropological kind of aspects to it underneath. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, where did Robert's rules come from? I think trial and error. I don't think he ever <laughs> I don't think he ever uh, got on a podium and went, I am Robert. Yeah, I didn't know if you passed rules. them down or something. Um, you know, it, it might have. I, I actually, you know what? I don't think I've ever read why, how Robert's rules came about. But that actually, I mean, maybe Eugene said something, although I'm sure people weren't taking a lot of pictures of him in Eugene's day. Yeah. But but I, I think I think it probably has much more to do with the people who are promoting Robert coming up with these things. Right. And what, what interests me about the Robert case, too, is that 95% of this could all just be pure legend, as with most of these haunted objects, you know, that we talk about in the book. But uh, this is one of those ones that has taken hold because it's that – it's that perfect, you know, confluence of what everybody likes about a haunted object. I mean, I love, uh, you know, being creeped out by dolls. And if you put this doll in a room with the creepiest dolls in the world, people would still point to this one and, and know it to be the one that makes them the most uneasy without even hearing the stories, just by its appearance. And I, I think that with the legend that's grown up around it, it's it's only become... You know, it's the it's the badass haunted object of the paranormal. I mean, there's there's nothing else that we wrote about in this book that is that people make such a connection with as Robert the doll. Now, I noticed too in the book, uh, in in one of the pictures, I guess you took the picture, Chris. Maybe you, I was hoping that it would be mentioned in the book, but it wasn't, so I I made note of it here. In the picture of Robert the doll, right, like at his feet, is a letter that looks like it comes from White House stationery. Why was there a letter from the White House sent to Robert the doll? Um, I actually think it's the, uh, not the state of Florida, I think it's like the Chamber of Commerce of Key West. Oh, okay, yeah, I couldn't read yeah, it exactly. Yeah, I think it's something so. like that, like it makes, it, it makes him an official citizen or something like that, or it thanks him for his great contributions to to the community of, of Key West. So, I mean, it, <laughs> however silly as that sounds, he has that kind of power that, you know, politicians take notice as well. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it is, like like Tim was saying, it does touch all of the, the paranormal uh, goosebump spots when when you're talking about the doll. It it's, uh, has this great history. It's been passed on. It was given to a little girl who knew nothing about it, and it still happens. You know, things are still going on. About it. I mean, it's, it's it is it is kind of uh, the rock star in the in the haunted objects world. Oh, absolutely. It's I mean, I've, I've I've seen it in a whole bunch of places and heard it in a bunch of places. So it's you know, it's it's something like. If you've seen it, if you've actually, you know, seen it, the picture of it or whatever, uh, as soon as someone says Robert the Doll, if you, you know, you immediately know what the hell people are talking about. It's sort of got, it's, it's an icon. So. You know, and we, we write about, uh, we write about Claire the Doll and we write about a few other dolls. And I think that originally Robert had a much smaller part in the book, um, until once again kind of fate stepped in. And during the, the process of us getting this book done, I happened to take a, you know, take my anniversary in Key West. Um, and so, you know, with this kind of like, wait a minute, this doll has kind of been in my life now, like these two weird times connected to other things that, that have been going on that are in the book. And then in addition to that, kind of being able to take a, and take a step back and be like, wait a minute, you know, like there's others, uh, another story, you know, there's the, the way that people are experiencing a story to tell too, made me want much more want to do that. That and the fact that I was able to like basically write off the whole vacation as a tax write off. So. <laughs> Um, now, Tim, maybe you can talk to this a little bit, because uh, this was a very pleasant surprise in the book, and that's that you guys profile uh, Pam Patilano and her 
her psycho psychometric abilities. I guess that's pro- I think that's how you would say it. Yeah, psychometric abilities, which is uh, for the uninitiated, the ability to like touch objects and and sort of get their psychic background or get their history or get what their their story. I guess is really the the best way to put it. Get the story of the object. So I guess talk about. This, because I was surprised. I didn't realize that that uh, Pam was in in the area. So someone I, I'm going to have to look into and have on the show sometime in the future. But I find the whole realm of uh, psychometry to be very interesting. I do as well because I'm somebody who always, you know, raises a, a fuzzy eyebrow to some of these psychics that are out there and the connections they make with people. I mean, I've I've been there firsthand and witnessed, you know, cold readings. I've been there and I've witnessed, you know, when people have little tells where they give clues off or where they, you know, they kind of let the, the psychic know which direction to go down. And so I've always thought that part of uh, what is being done has to do with that. And I've, I've also thought that people who do have the ability are, are maybe tapping into something that's being given off by the person. So it, in either case, it's the person that's always uh, been the one that's provided the way for the, the psychic uh, to start to, to make the, the complete picture. But with an object, it's a completely different story. The object can't have any tells. The object can't have any, uh, you know, tip-offs except for what you can maybe extrapolate from what kind of an object it is or where it might have come from. But other than that, to sit there and just hold it in your hands and to feel the vibrations of it and to be able to put together its backstory just by holding it in your hands uh, makes me think that there is something to that ability. And, and the fact that Pam uh, is somebody who has been vetted as a psychic by uh, someone that I trust completely, uh, Andrew Lake of Greenville Paranormal Research, she was for a time the only uh, psychic that Andrew would work with. And so I know that he put her through stringent testing to ensure that her abilities are accurate, and that, and that means to me that if she has this ability to uh, utilize her gifts on objects, then I, I can't say that it's not true. And when she was talking to me about her process of how she goes through it and, and the imagery that she gets and the feelings that she gets, you know, I realized that she's making the same connection with this object as the people who are being haunted by it, it's just she's from a more objective uh, point of view. And I, I really want to bring her some of my own items that, that mean a lot to me and, and kind of see if she can give me a, a picture based on that because I want to see firsthand how it works. But just hearing her talk about it, uh, it it's just a, it's a fascinating part of the whole psychic scene that I never would have uh, learned about had it not been for writing this book. Hi there. Do you have any books on how to get rid of ghosts? Have you tried telling them you're ready for a commitment? <laughs> you're listening to Banal of America Audio. Oh, like a relationship. <laughs> exactly. That'll send them running, huh? <laughs> oh, I like her. <laughs> uh, here you go. Maybe this will help. Like you said, it, it really uh, is a... I wouldn't say airtight, but it's certainly a more concrete version of psychic abilities because, mm-hmm. like you said, you don't get the tells of a person. You don't get the possibility for even innocent mental uh, exchanges, if you will, you know, that we don't understand or know about. You know, there's always that, that right. possibility. So when you're dealing with an object, and then it adds credence to the whole idea of what you guys have written with haunted objects, that, that somehow these things can carry an energy that the mainstream refuses or can't or or won't uh, even consider. 
So it's a, it, it brings it all together in a big way. And it's one thing to, to, you know, have somebody hand you a diamond ring and be like, tell me the story of this diamond ring. And they're going to hold it in their hand and say, well, this diamond ring means something to somebody. I mean, somebody really cherished this diamond ring. Well, no kidding. Yeah. You know, that, but to, to be able to kind of give the complete picture of the person who owned that ring, to have a, a complete visualization of, of, the situation in which that ring was originally given to that person, uh, that to me shows that there there is something that's imprinted upon these objects that we deal with and, and everything that we come in contact with in our daily life, we're leaving a little bit of ourselves behind. I find it interesting that, that anyone would discount this idea of an object being haunted. Um, I think it might be the most easily identifiable aspect of the paranormal. I mean, why do we keep our grandfather's tie tack after he dies? Because we want to feel connected to him, and somehow this does it for us. Why do we, um, why do we search, you know, old attics to, to get a little piece of our father who just recently passed? Or why do we leave things to people uh, when we know we're going to, when our time is about to happen? Um, because we understand that this object somehow becomes a connection between those two things. And so it's very silly, in my opinion, it's very silly to say, that these kinds of things can't take on that next level, which is actually to somehow have that essence. And like Tim's saying, uh, people who are trained can read that, and other people, especially if there's some kind of connection or there's some kind of environment that would that would um, give fuel to that, then experience something paranormal because of it. So it's, it's kind of like we have these things, we, they mean something to us, or even in our own lives, the things that we refuse to get rid of because they have some kind of you know sentimental connection to us, and yet to then turn around and be like, but ghosts can't exist or energy can't be trapped in that somehow. Well, it is. That's why you keep it there. That's why you have it on your desk so that you're reminded of your husband. Right. That goes back almost to the to the paradox, you could say, of the material world. It's kind of like, you know, like if somebody, if somebody like kills your dog or whatever. So I hope that, you know, that's an example of this. But it's like, you know, and they're always like, you know, well, they can... You can sue for the value of the dog, but you can't get anything for the sentimental value of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like sentimental right, value is right. this like nebulous idea, and I think that the haunted objects and the idea of objects taking on this energy connects to the idea of sentimental value because sentiment sentiment is something you can't really, it, it, you know, you can't put a face to it, if you will. You can't. It's not a tangible thing. It's it's very, uh, you know, it's it's in the eye of the beholder, if you will. Well, that's why investigators like, love that as a part of the backstory, but they hate it if it becomes part of the investigation. Right. And if you look look at, you know, everybody has heirlooms in their family or has something that they've received when somebody passes away. You know, there's always the valuables that are attributed for in a will. You know, I know that when, you know, this person dies, I'm going to inherit their coin collection, and it's worth $15,000, and I'm going to put it right into a safe just like they kept it in a safe type of thing. And... You know, people will talk about that through their entire lives. Uh, you know, when I die, you're going to get this coin collection. When I die, you're going to get this uh, diamond ring. And, you know, we want you to take care of these, and we want you to pass them on to your... You know, so you would think that those would be the things that have the most weight when somebody passes on. But it turns out that it's actually the more mundane things that have the haunting attached to them. More than anything, most of these stories that we got are kind of things that uh, are innocuous and that you wouldn't really think would have valid people, but like you're talking about with, with sentimental value, it's an emotion, and I think that's what essentially a ghost is, because it's not obeying our laws of physics, so the only thing it can be if it's not 
and still have such an impact on us would have to be an emotion. And just like, you know, you can't measure love, you can't measure a ghost. And when it becomes a feeling, when it becomes an emotion, then it makes more sense for it to be attached to the little things that will remind you as opposed to the big things. Interesting, yeah. I see what you're saying, yeah. Now, one more story in the book that I thought was interesting, and I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper into it, was this the story in the book uh, of yours, Chris, Knives and Shadow, or is it Knives and Shadows? Maybe I didn't Knives type. Knives and Shadows. Yeah, I didn't type that all the way. I'm an idiot. Uh, Knives and <laughs> – this, uh, this story in the book, Knives and Shadows, which uh, chronicles, you know, I'll sort of give a thumbnail, and you can flesh it out a little bit, but you got – a bunch of material during your investigation into the Bridgewater Triangle. You got a bunch of stuff about the the cult activity that was happening there. And then amongst this material, uh, a picture or a piece of, 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 of artifact or whatever, that's kind of what I want to know more about, kept reappearing and sort of showing itself up at the top of the of the heap of, of information. Not like in right. a not like in a in a mental sense where it kept popping up in your mind, but it literally would be at the top of the pile of files. You know, and you'd put all the stuff away and come back later and it would be back at the top, like it, like it kept moving to the top. So I right. guess talk a little bit about that, that, that incident. Yeah, it, it was probably the most, you know, um, warm and cuddly thing you could possibly think <laughs> of as being possessed. Uh, it was a piece of poster board uh, that had the off father written backwards and then in a mirror reflection in the person's blood. Um, <laughs> that was used, uh, or that was left, I should say, when this person had desecrated the nativity scene in Freetown, um, which is what my book, uh, Dark Woods, is all about. And Detective Alan Owls gave this to me uh, with all this material kind of about Freetown as I was doing the research. And, and what I was connecting there were, was there any connection between those kinds of cases, very weird things that were happening uh, that might revolve around cults but might also revolve around other weird elements that were, that were there and the amount of ghosts that were there. So it was, you know, it, it had built into it this kind of weird aura of both the paranormal, but then the darker side of it, kind of the the the, the, the creepy one, but then also the the crime aspect of it. And this yeah. was both a crime and ended up being kind of possessed and, and haunted. And so this piece of poster board, um, you know, I had tons of files from the detective. Uh, every time I seemed to open my stuff up, it would be on the top. And then I would take it out and I would do some research. I'd put it back in because, you know, what can you research about? It's just something interesting to have. And then put up the research that I was working on on top of it, and I'd open the box back up again, and it would be on top again. But then it started to, I, I remember I, I used to work, you know, in front of the television, going through all this stuff, just trying to sort through it, and I'd put the thing underneath the, the couch. I'd put the, the our father underneath the couch. And then I would kind of go out later, and it would be on top of the couch. And then I lost it for a while. And then every time, time I took a picture of it, the pictures never seemed to come out. It always seemed to, like, the flash seemed to reflect off it. And then I would take a picture without the flash, and still the flash would seem to flash off it, so I could never get a really good picture of it. And then every time I wanted to take a picture of it, you know, the other times I wanted to take a picture, it wouldn't be there at all. Um, and then things kind of seemed to escalate, and I started to see a lot of weird things in my house at that time. I was living in Woburn, Mass. And I start to see what could best be described as shadow people. And I'd always seen them out of the corner of my eye, and it always seemed to be this kind of very disturbing thing that I could never grab hold of, or I could never document, I could never see it head-on enough to kind of explore it and explain it. And I'm one of those people, I'm, I'm not like him. Um, you know, all through this, Tim has been like, if you have an haunted item, the best way to get rid of it is to give it to me. <laughs> I'm more of like, I like the paranormal, 
when it's out there and I can go look for it and experience it and then come home and everything's fine. So to have this happen in my house um, was very, very unsettling to me because I'm not into that. Um, and, um, you know, it kind of reached its peak when I came out one time and there was a knife stuck through the off-father. And <laughs> it was kind of like, all right, I'm not really going to play with this anymore. I'm going to put it away. But that, of course, didn't seem to stop it at all. Um, and then when I moved down to Florida, once again, I packed it up with all the stuff that I brought down because I was finishing up the book or I was finishing up at least some research attached to it. And when I found the stuff, it was all kind of tipped over, and this was on the top of it. It's almost as if someone had gone in and rummaged through my stuff, found this, and put it back on the top. Um, and so, you know, I, I eventually packed it all up, and I sent it off to Alan Alves. I gave it back to him, and he has never received it. He's received everything else I've sent. He received the box that I packed it up in. Cannot find this uh, this little piece of cardboard or this, this piece of poster board for the life of him now. It's weird. It's a yeah. Well, I was going to ask you because uh, I was as I was as I was hearing this story. I think my first inclination, as it tormented me, would be to find the dude that made it and be like, "Dude, you know what? This is yours now. This is this is your thing. You made it. You you brought this into the world. You can have it. You know what what's your deal, man? Or at least try to find out, you know, if there was something more to what he was trying to do. Did you ever sort of look into? the origins of this particular specific item, because it seems certainly, in, you know, imbued with some uh, power, if you will. Well, I think that in talking and doing the research for Dark Woods, I think that uh, Alan has talked about this guy and how he's kind of, while not, you know, an outstanding member of, of, of Freetown society, that he's a pretty normal guy now. Uh, and that several times they've kind of shared this awkward glance at the supermarket kind of thing, being like, you know, do you remember when you cut yourself open and blood all over the nativity scene? Um, you know, although it remains kind of unspoken. So uh, I'm assuming that if this this could, item could be found and we wanted to give it back to him, he probably wouldn't take it because it's good. If if nothing else, it's kind of made, seems to remind him of a, of a time when he was young and did something stupid. Right, right. And he, maybe out, maybe slightly out of his control too. Right, right. He'd just be more embarrassed by it. But I'd still force right. him to have it. I'd be like, dude, it's, it's yours. I don't care if you want it or not. It's yours. I don't want it. And you've, you've, you know, you've created you this little homunculus of some kind. So take it. You know, if I could find it, I might drive back up there and nail it onto his door. Yeah, yeah, with a copy of the book, so he knows <laughs> right what, what he's wrought to the world. What's what's funny too is like we were sharing these stories with each other, you know we were we were sending emails late at night, uh, you know like twelve thirty at night before we're turning in for the night. Here's the chapter I just worked on. What do you think? And I got to say, out of all the stories that we collected for the book, this was the only one that when I read it, I was like, ah, I think I'm gonna have a little bit of trouble sleeping tonight, and and I did. It's the only one that creeped me out and and disturbed me because, you know, knowing Chris and and knowing his stellar reputation. In this community, you know, he wouldn't put this out uh, unless he felt like it really needed to be to be told. And and I have no doubt that, you know, the the fear that he felt, you know, that comes through in the writing of of the fear that he felt of what was going on, you know, that could easily have been me in that position. You know, if it was a different case, it could easily have been, you know, anybody that I know and that I work with uh, that could be in the same position. And and to know that it can have those kind of tentacles makes me a little bit nervous. The only time I've ever been more freaked out was when uh, I got that message from Jackie Barrett from Ronnie DeFeo. That, that one kept me up for a couple nights as well. What's that all about? Is this an inside oh, joke? Oh, yeah, we, 
No, we had uh, we had Jackie Barrett on our show, and and she works close now with Ronnie DeFeo, the uh, alleged Amityville killer, and uh, he passed on a message uh, to me from the supposedly dark uh, entity, the 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 demonic entity that controlled him, uh, basically saying that uh, you know that that I shouldn't be poking around in it, and that it's kind of looking looking at me now. So yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so that and Chris's story were the only two things that have ever really scared me in my pursuit of the paranormal. Which, which of course, is interesting because when Jackie Barrett, uh, which is all, this whole story is also in the book, when Jackie Barrett first approached me about pretty much writing the story that is now her book, um, The Devil I Know, um, I, you know, and if you want, we can tell the full story, but, you know, she approached me to help her write this. Uh, and through the course of the things that happened, uh, I refused. And Tim said, I'll do it. Give me the stuff. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so it's interesting that, you know, uh, uh, probably a, a year after that, um, Ronnie made himself known to Tim anyway. So, and then they're <laughs> yeah. all together. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's some spooky stuff. Well, it's interesting. And that's something that's continued to plague us throughout kind of the promotion of this book is whenever we start to talk about this part of it or whether we, whenever either one of us starts to, kind of get into Ronnie DeFeo and Jackie Barrett's side of the whole Amityville thing, you know, very odd things happen. Weird. Well, yeah, that that that, that, that whole area gets into, like, demonic possession and all kinds of, uh, that, that's sort of like knee-deep in the realm of uh, dark energy, if you will. Now, I, I also thought it was interesting you guys talk about uh, Ouija boards in there, and I know we all know, uh, we're all familiar with with a fellow Massachusetts resident, uh, Robert Murch, who was like the, the authority on Ouija boards. And we had him on the show, uh, I think a couple of years ago. I thought it was interesting because he's, you'd think that the world's foremost authority on Ouija boards would be all about sort of propagating the, the stuff that's like in haunted objects. But he's pretty, he's pretty, uh, you know, by the book on, on Ouija and, and, you know, says that it's really in the eye of the beholder. But, but, this book, Haunted Objects, is just chock full of uh, spooky Ouija stories. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's um, once again, it begs the question, you know, is this being used as kind of the connector um, between the spirit world and the um, and, and our world, or is are the boards themselves, or can the boards themselves uh, become haunted um, or trapped? And, and it's funny because, you know, when I first started kind of getting heavy into the Ouija board in my high school and then into my college years, almost kind of like Robert's rules, there were these rules of Ouija boards, and no one could quite tell me where they had come from, um, but there were very specific things you could do or not do, and you had to take a bye, and, and one of the things, I think, which is kind of, um, if, not, if, if it's not an urban legend, it definitely feels like one, and it's kind of existed, especially in, in modern media, that destroying a haunted object can somehow release the the spirit or whatever might might be attached to it and have it come after you. Uh, and so we have some stories in there about indestructible boards, but we also have this kind of these stories that play around with this idea that, you know, the board itself somehow when it leaves you and goes someplace else, um, somehow can be like released, especially if you try to destroy it or you try to get rid of it. It either finds its way back to you or the last thing you experience kind of becomes the thing that the next person experiences. Yeah, yeah. This book's made me want to mess around with the Ouija board again, but I've gotten mixed advice from people, so I don't know. Well, it's it's not. I mean, people take it way too seriously. I think. 
uh, of course, this being coming from somebody who doesn't use them. But uh, I've never used a Ouija board in my life, so maybe I should. I I I, I touched one once, and that was uh, about it. And that was mainly just uh, more for a photo opportunity than anything. <laughs> But uh, the way I've always looked at them, though, is it's the same as anything else. You know, if, if it's just another way for a spirit to communicate. So turning on a tape recorder and asking questions is the same as using a Ouija board. Uh, the, the reason why I don't like it is because it's too much of that your own mental abilities kind of jumping in there, and it, it, it's actually almost polluting it. Uh, but uh, I did hear uh, John Zaffis one time uh, speak, and he was talking about how one of the most bizarre items that he ever had to deal with uh, was a Ouija board, and what he ended up doing with it is he uh, tied a, a chain around it and and put some rocks down on it to weight it down. He threw it in the river behind his house. Yeah. And that that running water is is keeping the spirit that was attached to it from getting out because apparently this thing was so severely haunted that uh, you know that was the only way that it could be neutralized. And it, it just it makes me think that you know if if one little piece of cardboard can hold that kind of power, then pretty much anything you know we're screwed. Because uh, anything could have a, a demon behind it. I mean, it's one thing to have a, a demon attached to to uh, a board game, but imagine if it decides to go all maximum overdrive on us and and go into a, a tractor trailer that's running kids down on the street. Exactly. Yeah, the Ouija is perplexing. It's a it's an odd device in a lot of ways. But it's, it's, it's very core. It's a game. Hmm. It's just a game. <laughs> I it, 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 and I, so I think that when we were thinking about. Um, what stories, what Ouija board stories to include, because, you know, I think we both have heard and me definitely experienced a lot of odd Ouija things and ta- other talking boards, was we wanted, I at least when, in my sections on the Ouija, wanted to contain it to where the board took a life of its own. Yeah. You know, so there's plenty of stories I could have thrown in there. I couldn't have a whole book just of, of those stories, but I'd really try to take it to, you know, the board itself for some reason to insert itself into people's lives, as opposed to just, you use a Ouija board, and then weird things start happening other places in your house. Right, right, right. Like, you you want to make it where the object was the star of the story, if you will. Right, right. So the, the, I, think, I like to think in our book that the boards are really the star, the, uh, the star of their own stories. Well, Chris, you contacted a spirit in, in your story with the, na- the, the single scariest name that I've ever heard. <laughs> spirit <in itself. laughs> Uh, federal government. <laughs> right. I remember, yeah, I remember Chris telling me this story on one of our many drives. So, it, it, yeah, I, and, that, and as I was reading it, it stood out to me because I was like, oh, the federal government story. I remember yeah, this. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and I've kind of, you know, I've been, and it was probably one of the very first, like, documented paranormal things that happened to me. And so I've been writing about federal government for 20 years, and, and and I can go, okay, the federal government story. And people go, no, no, tell the story, tell the story. I'm like, fine, I'll tell the federal government story. And so I felt like I needed to include it in the book because it was one of those things where the more that we were playing with it and these very weird things were happening with this one specific board, this spirit, uh, you know, called federal government, attached itself to it, tried to kill my roommate because he was a horrible person and had treated girls badly, uh, in its words. And so, um, and then, you know, like I said, it, it becomes kind of, it takes a life of its own. It, it kind of appears and reappears and, you know, makes things happen in direct relate, you know, proximity to it, like makes fire alarms go off when it's near it and things like that. So it, it was, um, and once again, very mysterious. Don't know where that board is, you know, and I think that's one of the first things we talked about, uh, in that chapter is no one ever really remembers. I mean, they sure they remember the cheesy one that they got for, 
one Halloween because they didn't have, they couldn't find theirs, whatever. But no one ever really seems to remember where their boards come from. Uh, they find them in attics, they find them at yard sales, and years down the road they start, you know, like they whip it out again. It's like, where did you get that? I don't know, where did I get this again? Uh, so these boards seem to find this weird kind of way into their lives, and, and you know, the federal government board uh, couldn't, couldn't tell you where that is. Couldn't tell you. You know what? It's probably with the Spooky South Coast banner. <laughs> it sounds to me like we just don't take good care of our stuff, Chris. And it really does. Like, the basic point of, of uh, Haunted Objects is don't let us have any of your stuff because we're going to lose it. <laughs> I did send Claire the doll back in one piece, though, so. Right. Maybe this could be the sequel to uh, Haunted Objects, uh, and maybe you guys considered this as a potential aspect of the book, but I know there's a lot of, like, urban legends, and then I've heard you know, stories that are sort of mainstream news stories uh, of, of weird situations where somebody gets a transplant and either takes on sort of the personality aspects of, of the person they got the stuff from or, you know, taking it to an extreme level like the, the horror movies where it's like, you know, you get the arm of a killer and all of a sudden you're a killer. I mean, that, that, that in a way, it's, it's, it's sort of a haunted object, but it sort of crosses that line into into uh, the, the the physical body, if you will. But, I mean, how, how prevalent are those types of stories, or are they really more predominantly in the in the urban legend realm? I think they're definitely uh, more of the urban legend because I think uh, most people uh, who have these transplanted limbs and organs and everything else, you know, the, the, the quality of life that they get from having it uh, improves so much that, I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe some of them would would happily go out there and, and bludgeon a few people, you know, for the, for the relief that they're getting. Uh, I, I don't think that we're hearing too many uh, negatives attached to that, but uh, it, it does make for a really cool story when when Hollywood does it right. What about Chris? You uh, you ever heard any of these tales? Um, I mean, I've heard of people who who think they're connected somehow. They're right, connected. right. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard too many of, you know, the, of the darker sides of it where people feel as if they've, um, there's someone else controlling their arm. But I mean, it does make complete sense because, you know, if you take the paranormal side out of it, you know, there is, like, like Tim was saying, there, that's, you know, that gives them a, a, a quality of life that they didn't have before and oftentimes saves their life. And so you want to feel like they're connected. And, and I think it's kind of, and, and while I, from my understanding, this is, you know, fairly, uh, um, common is that the people, uh, the family who donated the item gets in contact with the person who gets it. Right, um, yeah. And so you feel as if you're connected to that person because you're suffering from a very emotional time. There's something new and foreign in you. Um, your body chemistry has changed. Your mindset has changed. And you feel the need to, you know, to kind of be like, well, why is this change happening? You know what? I bet now that for some reason I like chocolate, it's because that person liked chocolate. Right, right. Yeah. It's an interesting... Uh... Like I said, maybe that can be you guys' sequel to this book. Haunted yeah, limbs. I mean, one thing we didn't get was a lot of was a lot of like haunted prosthetics. I think that would be kind of a cool idea, but unfortunately, no one came forward with those kind of stories. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Anyone out there with a haunted prosthetic story, send it in. Oh, we'll sort of wrap up the the haunted objects discussion there, and just do a little chat here with you guys, if you don't mind, about just paranormal investigation in general, because I've teased out sort of discussing that, so I don't want to leave people hanging on that. But where can folks get haunted objects, stories of ghosts on your shelf? Uh, obviously through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those 
find websites and uh, a specific website that you guys prefer to have people check out as well? Well, uh, it's available in the store at SpookySouthCoast.com. And uh, we do have a plan to eventually, uh, you know, ship a case back and forth and and have us sign each one of them so that we can have signed copies because there's not going to be any time soon where people can get both of us in the in the same room <laughs> to sign them as much as we've been trying to make that happen. But uh, sooner or later we will. But SpookySouthCoast.com is the place to go to to get the book. And, uh, and of course, I'll I'll be out at some Legend Trips events around uh, New England coming up in October. I'll have them for sale. And uh, well, you can always ship them down to Chris and have him sign them afterwards. You, you don't mind getting piles and piles of books in the mail, do you, Chris? No, as a matter of fact, I'm a school teacher, um, and I have to sign passes all the time. And so I've been practicing my signature even more. So I'm ready to start <laughs> signing some books. Awesome, awesome. I go to the bathroom, here you go, and I always sign in. I say, I don't want to see that on eBay. I bet you you're going to get that crate of books, and on top of it, it's going to be that poster board with the uh, <laughs> Devil's Creed or whatever on there. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a good idea. I might have to do that now, just to, just to mess with them. Oh, that would be awesome. Now, I, I was sort of alluding to, in my curmudgeon way earlier, uh, sort of uh, my normal complaints about ghost hunting in general, and I, I, I teased what they were, but I, and and I think Tim can really speak to this because you're you you've done investigations, you know the community of investigators around here in Massachusetts well, and and the thing I've sort of harped on in the last couple of years is just that I feel like the quality of evidence just isn't there compared to the amount of time and energy and and manpower that's spent on ghost hunting. And again, this isn't a reflection on the people. It's more of a reflection maybe on the phenomenon and the tactics. But, you know, you're well, much more versed in the zeitgeist of ghost hunting and paranormal investigation. So I may be wrong. There may be other stuff that's going on that I don't even know about. But it's like EVPs and, and, and EMF readers and stuff. I don't know. I feel like we haven't really taken that next step to, to something else, something more that should be there based on how much time and energy, again, and manpower is spent on this. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we have to preface uh, this discussion by saying that there's there's almost two schools within paranormal research. There's uh, what we call the weekend warriors, and then there's what we call the, the serious researchers. Right. And, and, and that's by no means to say that the people who are these weekend warriors aren't serious about what they're doing, but they're just stuck within the limitations of what they're seeing on television and what they're experiencing working with other groups that are seeing it on television. Uh, there is a, a great deal of research being done now uh, with the technology that's available today, and, and people are always trying to find new ways to utilize it. We now have equipment that's being made solely for the purpose of paranormal investigation for the first time since, you know, the spiritual era, uh, spiritualism era. And now uh, there's, there is a way to take it the next step. But the problem is when we talk about the paranormal quote-unquote community, we're talking about a bunch of people who just want to go out there and have a paranormal experience. And the only difference between them and the people that pay $99 to come on one of our Legend Trips events and, and go experience the paranormal that way is these people are willing to spend the time and the money to go out and get their own equipment and to make the phone calls to get into these places. And that's really the only difference. Because uh, they're they're not starting where they should with their nose in a book, with uh, with the serious research being done in libraries and and uh, there, there's there's so much paranormal to it and not enough research is how it's become and and Chris and I do a, a show on on SpookySouthCoast.com on Wednesday nights called uh, Spooky Crossroads and the idea behind it was it would take 
the things we talk about on the show a step further. And what we found that's become over the past couple of months we've been doing it is it's just us airing our grievances about the paranormal community. And and that's first and foremost in our minds is is the field is being polluted by too many people who are in it for their own thrill-seeking and not to advance the, the what could be considered the science of it. Right, right. And and so is there an emerging science, if you will? Because like I said, I mean, I feel like we've we've gone as far as we can with EVPs and and um, the map readers and even pictures and stuff. I, was, you, right. I just feel like and in a way you're almost you're you know, you're almost set back by the limitations of the actual phenomenon in and of itself. It's like you're really not going to know about life after death or all this stuff until you die anyway. So it's, yeah, you would have known about it already. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I try to tell people all the time now when they're involved in in groups and when they are going out and doing investigations, you're not going to catch what you're going to call the Holy grail of evidence. There's not going to be something that you get that just makes everybody say, you know what? You're right. Ghosts are real because it, it's a personal thing. It has to be something that you experience on a one-on-one basis to, to have that understanding of it. So no matter what evidence you get, it doesn't make a difference. So with with that in mind, I mean, you're just kind of chasing your own tail going out there, capturing all this stuff. You're either proving it, you either need to prove it to yourself or prove it to the person that calls you in for the investigation, and, and that's it. The, the real trick of it is to be able to take all the evidence that has been gathered over the years, as much as a lot of it has been redundant, and to start putting together the bigger picture of it. And that's where there is a great deal of advancement happening now because we have more scientific acceptance of the idea of the multiverse, of these parallel universes, of quantum mechanics, quantum physics, you know, that we can throw away the old rules of physics, which basically say that a ghost can exist, and now we're able to kind of rewrite those rules, and in that process, we're able to create a framework in which a ghost, as we think we understand it, can exist. What would, I, mean, I think part, yeah, of the, part of the problem is, is that we're talking about really big questions. You know, what happens to us after we die? Right. Uh, potentially, is our God? Things like that. And what we're doing is, it's kind of like uh, taking someone who learns how to play piano so they can sing by the fire on Christmas time and asking them why they're not writing a symphony. Um, you know, these really are people who are enjoying. I think Tim and I are a little bit. We deviate. We, you know, him and I tend to argue a little bit when we when we get together. Uh, I, I have no problem with with people investigating and people thrill seeking and people legend tripping and people not advancing the field for it because you know that's what their gig is. And so to ask them beyond that, you know, we won't come up with a better technology for investigating ghosts um, uh, if the technology that we have satisfies the majority of the people. So I think there was a time, maybe a few years ago, where people were doing some very inventive things with things like Frank's box and the hack shack and some other things. Those things seem to have died down a little bit because people are really kind of satisfied with um, using what we have. Um, and it's not until, like Tim was saying, that we start exploring some bigger ideas. But I don't, I don't think it's fair to necessarily say to someone, um, you know, you're not doing it the right way. Because you're not trying to write that symphony, but more just because you're 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 satisfied to be able to play a guitar around a fire and, and you and your drunk friends sing. <laughs> well, let me let me clarify though. I don't I don't feel that there's anything wrong with people doing that. I feel that there's something wrong with them doing that and feeling like they're advancing the field for it. Right under you know? the guise of yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That, I, that wasn't that wasn't I wasn't saying we were arguing about that point, my brother. There, there, yes, we were. No, you weren't. Yes, we were. But there's too much of, <laughs> there's too much of people doing it that way though 
And when what's what's happened with the community is they get locked into a way of doing it. And again, I go back to they're doing it the way that they saw it on TV. And when somebody comes up with an idea that deviates from that, well, that can't be legitimate because I didn't see Jason and Grant do that on Ghost Hunters. And that's where the problem lies because there is that there is that stigma now on coming out with new approaches that you know it's going to be shot down by the people that are supposedly uh, the ones that are in the field. Uh, there, There is emerging technology. The problem is the emerging, a lot of the emerging technology is just being created to simplify or amplify or uh, extend what we already are gathering. So, you know, we, we think that EMF can detect a ghost. Well, all we're getting now is fancier EMF detectors. We think right. that an electronic voice phenomena is proof of a spirit having a way to imprint its voice. So all we're getting now is the ability to capture those real time. You know, we're, we're not really starting a new shift in how we're collecting evidence. We're just having fancier and flashier ways of doing it. Right, right. Because well, the field well, itself ahead, is inherently so deviant, because the field itself is, is, is however much people who are in the paranormal uh, embrace it and think that it's catching on, and however much those shows are popular, and however many um, surveys we hear that, you know, 90% of people have had a ghostly experience or believe ghosts could possibly be real what it really boils down to is that mainstream America doesn't really embrace looking for ghosts. They might watch a show about it, uh, in the same way they might watch a show about prostitution, but it doesn't mean they're embracing prostitution. Um, and so what there is is a sense that you can't, within this deviant field, you can't deviate because the only people you really have is this support system that also is into these paranormal shows and now investigates. And so that's some of the fear that Tim's talking about, is that people don't want to stir that pot because they don't want to be considered the weirdo within the field of weirdos. That's, that's the new thing, too. And, and we talk about it a lot on Spooky South Coast and on Spooky Crossroads. You know, we, we go over the idea all the time of this paranormal unity. You know, we're all supposed to work together. And I'll admit, you know, Spooky South Coast, we fell into that trap a few years ago where we did a lot of shows that promoted everybody working together, and that was the only way we were going to advance things if we all worked together. And, and, and then I realized no business was ever built. Uh, no field was ever built by everybody working together and singing Kumbaya. There has to be some sort of competitiveness between them, and there has to be the advancement of ideas. And if it does fly in the face of what everybody accepts, well, then good. That means you're doing your job right. And I think that's what people that are in the field uh, don't want to admit. And, and I'm starting to see when people like, you know, my friend Dave Francis, who's been a long-time independent investigator, Matt Moniz, a long-time independent investigator, people that don't want to work with groups, they'll work alongside them, but they don't want to join them. They don't want to be part of that dynamic. And I realize that they really are on to something because it becomes less about the pursuit of what you're doing and more about your position of importance within that framework. And it's also the people who are the commentators, you know, people like Nick Redfern, people like Jeff Belanger, who are not afraid to take ideas and then theorize about them and rather than going with the crowd, shift the crowd and say, no, wait a minute, let's look at this part of it for a moment. What do you think this could have to do with it? Um, those are the people that I think uh, advance the field forward. So well, I, I put them in a different category, though. They're paranormal uh, researchers. You know, we could even call certain people paranormal investigators. That's an entirely different dynamic than those who are just ghost hunters. There you go. <laughs> I just let you guys kind of go out of there. That was nice. <laughs> well, I'd like to see, and maybe, you know, I think my friend Larry Flaxman has looked at this sort of thing, and, and maybe there's more people doing it, and maybe uh, 
Tim or Chris would know this, but I, I definitely think there needs to be more of an examination sort of on the people on the ghost hunt. You know, whether it's, right. you know, some kind of, some you know, some kind of body reader or whatever. I don't know. You know, I'm not a scientific guy, so you know what I mean. But, like, some kind of thing that, that's keeping track of your blood pressure or your or the electromagnetivity in your head or whatever while you're on the ghost hunt or something like that. I think there needs to be more of an examination of the of the searcher, if you will, to get a, a better idea of what sort of elements come into play altogether to, to generate this ghost activity. And, and being um, one of those independent investigators like Tim was talking about, you know, when I was when I was still actively investigating, I often was working with groups or working with kind of a, you know, what I would like to consider all-stars sometimes, like people that I brought together that I thought were really good. I often found myself during the investigation observing them and monitoring what they were doing more than monitoring the ghosts. Because like, like I said, I became as obsessed with ghost hunters uh, or paranormal investigators as I did with ghosts. And, and it's, it's an interesting field that draws interesting people into it and creates uh, a very odd atmosphere. Tim and I were just talking about this last night, the need to uh, automatically, once you've formed a group or once you've decided to do this, to, to start having a hierarchy, uh, start giving yourself titles. You know, in no other um, hobby do you instantly say, I want to do it, and then become an authority and then become have a title, which is very cool and, and you know, to a lot of people, and they want to embrace that part of it. And so that becomes a dynamic in the investigation. So I don't think it's fair to let these people determine or present to the world what ghosts are and what ghosts may be, nor do I think it's fair to let them uh, propagate what a paranormal investigator is or does or believes, and yet those people seem to be the loudest voices in the field and the ones that get the media coverage. Well, you know, that always seems to be the case, doesn't it? Doesn't it, though? <laughs> But yeah, I think that we need to sort of look at the at the examiner more. I think you know, I think we need to take a more introspective look. I guess you could say, because and, I, and that's I that's wonder why where we need to go. Yeah, I was gonna say that's why it's not accepted by science. You know, that's why we do have such a hard time getting it over those those scientific hurdles of getting you know the the quote unquote lab coats to agree with what it is that we're doing because they're looking at the people that are doing it and saying, well, the way they're doing it is not scientifically correct. You know, they're kind of just going in there with a bunch of equipment that they don't really understand how it works. They're using it in a way that it wasn't intended, and then when they come out with an anomalous response from it, they think that it's proof of the paranormal. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things I always taunt um, Moniz about as well. Is I always say, you know, you know, brother, your science is going to fail you, um, because I think that you're looking at something that defies what we can now accept. Um, as science. So the laws of physics, the laws of the universe, laws of, of matter and gravity, and all these things that Tim was uh, talking about before, you know, somehow being challenged now um, by people who are really, really smart um, and really experienced. Um, you're trying to take something which is unexplainable and explain it, um, and then getting very frustrated when people don't accept it. And it's, it's one of those things where you know, I think that, that that science has and always will kind of, as we, come, as we currently know it, fail to examine this the right way. I don't think there's a scientific method we can really do to investigate the paranormal. I don't think the science of ghost hunting is a science. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, learning history from reading the back of oatmeal packages. Um, so many of these things are more towards the realm of urban legend than they are scientific facts. You know, we, we think cold spots, uh, equal ghosts because we've often associated them with paranormal experiences that we have. 
well, why is that? Why is it a cold spot, not a hot spot? Okay, well, you can point to, you know, endothermic versus exothermic uh, uh, reactions, but why is one time it endothermic and one time exothermic? Why is that? And so science never seems to be able to satisfy at least my need for knowing because even when, you know, someone's able to, even some of the smartest, some of the, the people we've interviewed on Spooky South Coast or, or Matt Moniz or other people who are much smarter science-wise than we are, when we get to the question of the why, they said they can't seem to answer that. And so I don't think until we've um, understood some of the things that Tim was talking about before that, that we would ever be able to objectively, quote-unquote, scientifically look at the paranormal. Right, right. It kind of goes to the idea that, you know, like I was I was grousing about the the abundance of EVPs and all the other stuff that seems just to be redundant, as, as uh, Tim very rightly uh, used the correct word there for me. Uh, maybe we just kind of have reached, or even though there may be some new developments, we're, we're getting closer and closer to sort of reaching a wall, if you will, that you just really actually, we just cannot actually go through unless you die. It's like that's, that's, right. the, that's right. the extent that you can go on this. But that I'm not is, sure I want science to. I'm not sure I want science to. Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. I was going to say, but that is, you know, that that is the issue, though, is that there's still so many people individually that need to uh, keep working their way up to that wall. And as as more and more people are getting their feet wet into this, you know, they're they're just starting out on the path that leads to that wall. Uh, you know, 10, 15 years from now, maybe we'll have reached the point where most people are standing up against that wall and are ready to push it down. But for now, it, there, there's still too many people that are just starting out on the journey for us to start worrying about where it's going to end up. But I don't even know if you can push the wall down, I guess is what I'm saying. I just don't, you know, it may, it may actually be some, like, limitation of what, like, it may come to the point where, like, yeah, we can kind of hear them, we can kind of see them, but that's as far as you can go. But who knows? Right. Maybe maybe there'll be a way of unlocking all that as science progresses. It's like giving a cell phone to somebody, you know, in ancient Egypt. You know, if you could give them a cell phone that worked and they could hear somebody's voice come out of it and, and see pictures recorded on it and all kinds of things, you know, they, they, they just don't have the framework uh, to be able to conceptualize how it can work. There, there's no point of reference for them, and that's kind of where we are right now. There's no point of reference for us outside of associating it similar to what we know a living person to be. Exactly, yeah, which may be completely wrong, too. We don't, you know. Absolutely, it could very well be. I mean, I've long argued that I don't necessarily think that a ghost is the soul of a dead person. You know, I, I think that they can be completely independent of each other. Yeah, they could be like a whole different entity, like a djinn, if you will, or something like that. Sure, it could, or it could just be the collective remaining energy uh, of a person that doesn't dissipate after the, the physical shell of that no longer goes. And, and once it's out there and once that uh, energy is released out there, it can morph into anything that it wants. And, and I'm starting to think more and more, and I know people don't like to hear it, but I'm starting to think more and more that most of the ghosts that we deal with are the creations of us looking for them. You know, they're, they're just these thought forms that we've created. And that's why so many places are popping up as being haunted these days. If you walk by a creepy building and you think it might be haunted and you go in there and you find ghosts, well, I'm not surprised. Right, right. Yeah, we had a guest on recently talking about this sort of idea, tulpas and, and whatnot. You right. Know, this tulpification of the paranormal, which certainly is a, a possibility. But it's exciting in a way, too, because, you know, like we said earlier, uh, this ghost hunting has taken off in the last 10 years, but it, it seems like, and you know, I'm, I'm biased because I didn't get into this until like the last 10 years, so my own thinking has gotten more advanced and sophisticated. But I do think there's a, a there's a, you know, a more openness to to these sort of ideas, if you will, 
that 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 maybe as we get closer to the wall, we're starting to look for ways around it, if you will. Sure. Yeah, and, and we'll and, find and, them. We will. And part of me doesn't want to find them. You know, part of me wants to have that that wonderment that Tim was talking about earlier. Part of me wants to, you know, my daughter is pretty amazed when she looks at lightning. You know, and my son is is completely convinced. Uh, you know that thunder is, is is God pounding his fist or Jesus pounding his fist or something like that that my wife has said, and he kind of embraces that and he kind of enjoys that and and you know this constant need we have to explain things. I mean, ghost stories um, are this great collection of connections to the past, history, which is something Tim and I have have both kind of specialized in over the years is connecting uh, ideas and history and letting people learn more about history through ghosts. Um, it's this, it's this spiritual journey, which doesn't necessarily need to have a label of, of, of a religion attached to it. And, and all of those things kind of come together into what makes a, a paranormal experience. It's this kind of authority you can get by feeling like you can touch that, that you can answer these questions. So to have them actually answered, to understand that to me, the where, where I am right now, um, I don't actually embrace that that much. I don't want someone to explain this to me. I'm kind of interested in, 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 in having that sense of story about it and having that sense of still getting goosebumps uh, when I hear a really good story, but it, be it real or not real, but also being able to understand that this story might be a true experience. This story is definitely an urban legend and embracing and loving both of those things. So I'm kind of a, I guess over the past couple of years, I've gotten a much more kind of a bohemian hippie-ish kind of a, idea about the paranormal. Right. It goes to that old uh that old adage that, you know, the journey is more enriching than the destination. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And I don't want to get there. And I've reached the point too where for me and I, I I'm not shy about this. Uh you know, I, I tell people all the time it's for me it's no longer about me going out there and experiencing uh, a paranormal event I, I almost hope that it won't happen to me when I go out if it means the other person that's with me is going to experience it instead. I want to see the look on their face because each time that happens, I remember what it was like for me when it happened to me. And, and I think that's kind of what keeps my pursuit of it going. That and hopefully being able to someday uh, make some bigger connections amongst all this. And it, it's funny. I, I've got this student right now, and she's 14, and she's reading Fight Club. And <laughs> she's a very slow reader. And every day she's in my homeroom. Every day I look at her and I'm like, have you gotten there yet? Have you gotten there? She's like, no, I'm not at the twist yet. I'm not at the point. I'm like, why aren't you reading? And it's that, like, I'm waiting for the morning where she has that night read the part where she finds, like, what the whole point of the story is. And she's, I know she's going to come in. She's going to be like, oh, my God. I'm like, oh, my God. We can share that moment together. That's kind of like what Tim was talking about. I think that, you know, it's kind of like watching The Matrix with someone for the first time. You're waiting for that moment where they're like, what just happened? And and that is sometimes more enlightening than having the experience yourself. Because you get to experience it and then experience the connection with the person who's having it. It could also be like that night when all us three grown men all were crying un- unabashedly at the series finale of Lost. I was going to mention Lost, yeah. It's like introducing people to Lost. So, yeah, it is like that. Yes, yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's... And my wife always, when, we, when we're watching some random episode of Lost, will look at me because she knows that I just am dying to tell her the 17 things connect to this really mundane thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now... Before I let you go, Balzano, you've been on my mind a lot lately, and uh, the reason for that is this big presidential election, because uh, on, the, on the way to one of these events, you, you adamantly insisted to me that Mitt Romney was the Antichrist, and it's not some kind of political uh, thing. It's 
You know, it's it's just your belief in in the uh, uh, eschatology of it. So, I mean, what what's your take? You getting a little scared here? Your your boy Mitt getting I'm, closer I'm, and closer I'm, to the throne. I'm completely scared. Uh, I you know, it, and and people need to keep in mind that then he was this somewhat obscure businessman who had become the governor of Massachusetts when I started talking about this. And people told me I was crazy. There's never any way that he would be, uh, you know, in the political arena enough to ever be even anywhere close to the presidency. And I kept saying, I'm, you know, I, I'm a Democrat. I can put that out there. I'm not, you know, it's not one of those things where I'm saying it because I, I hate Republicans or things. I mean, I have been talking about this for quite a while now that there's just so much about him, um, be it, uh, you know, and if you take, and of course you can take scripture and you can kind of manipulate it any way you want. But there are so many references to someone like Mitt Romney and um, uh, so many things like, you know, the rise of New Jerusalem, which many people have taken to be, um, you know, somewhere in the Middle East, but in actuality could very easily be Utah. Um, everything from that to just this kind of seductive nature. And that was kind of the first thing that hit me was the seductive nature. I'd be listening to him going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, Wait a minute. No, I don't believe that. Um, and my ideas would be ridiculous. And I was like, wow, this guy's really kind of, um, uh, seductive. And there's something very sinister about that. There's something very, um, and like I said, he was not a political giant at that time. And so it's very interesting now to see these things kind of playing in and, and how many, uh, references have been made to the opposite side being somehow connected to, you know, the apocalypse and, you know, it's 2012 and, and he's, uh, uh, in many ways, a heartbeat away from the White House. So it's it's very interesting to see if the world will end. And I'm hoping that our book sells a lot of copies before then. <laughs> like I said, I, this whole year I've been you keep popping up in my mind as I watch the election coverage because it's like, oh, this is what Balzano was talking about like five years ago. Yeah, and and it's, you know people thought that it was a joke, and I was and I'm like, no, I'm not saying it as a joke. I'm saying it as like a legitimate thing. And I, you know, I started trying to do research to make some connections, and actually. I wish I still had the sheet because I had made these a whole bunch of these because we were going to talk about Spooky South Coast one night, and um, and you know I, I think that I think that there is a um, there's a shift oh from locally locally being the United States to, to internationally, and I think there's something that's going to fall and something that's going to rise, and I think that he seems to be someone who can very um, comfortably navigate that. Uh, and so if he's uh, elected, you know, I'm pretty much uh, going to start buying a lot of canned soup. <laughs> and just, you know, for the for the political junkies who are, like, wringing their hands, like I tried to point this, this isn't like an Obama is Hitler thing. This isn't like, you know, this isn't like, oh, Romney's the Antichrist because uh, I don't agree with his stance on, on this, that, or the other thing. This is just a general sort of uh, feeling you have uh, in addition to sort of your ideas on, on the end times. Right, right. And, and, you know, like I said, I, for a while I was doing research on it and I found a lot of uh, creepy connections that, that uh, were unsettling and that I would pass on to people. And it was always thought to be a political thing, and it's not. Yeah, it's exactly. More of a, it's much more of a, um, if the end time's going to come, this seems like a really good time, and he seems like a really good captain of that ship. I certainly agree with the first part. It certainly is a good a good time for the end times. It certainly seems like we're being set up for something, but I don't know. I, I I'm all I'm all tweaked out about the whole thing. Tim, what are your thoughts about all this? <laughs> I just I just worry about what it means if he loses. Oh, I know. If, if, if the Antichrist goes down, what's worse than that? I yeah, the super I mean, Antichrist. 
yeah, you would have thought if he was the Antichrist, he might have had a chance of beating Ted Kennedy, you know, 15 years ago. But <laughs> it's all part of his master plan. Yeah, that's well, true. I was gonna say, yeah, I mean, if, if if you really, and of course, you can get caught up in this so much this kind of thinking. But and Tim and I have talked a lot about this when we talk about you know uh, overwhelming uh, and overreaching things having to do with the paranormal. It's like. You know, you can totally make an excuse of like, no, part of the plan is that he loses. Don't you get it? Exactly. What's better, you know, and so it's, it's, you know, you can always kind of play those games. And eventually it comes down to if it's going to happen, there's really nothing that we can do to stop it, prevent it, or kind of brace ourselves for the wave. So it's going to, if, if we really believe that this kind of thing is destined, then you can't play with destiny. You can't control destiny and might as well just be along for the ride. Right, right. Well, that whole, that kind of ties into the whole idea we were talking about you know, projections of the mind and tulpification and the idea that if enough, that's what, that's what worries me about 2012, although it seems to have sort of lessened, uh, ironically as 2012 has unfolded. But it's like, I really would rather not a whole big mass of the population think this is the end of the world because what if it reaches some kind of critical mass where they accidentally cause the end of the world by believing in it so much? So Sure. Stuff can get scary pretty quickly. I, I've just been telling everybody all year that uh, 2012 is just a mind Y2K. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, we got so about five. People are so smart. How can we be able to wipe them out so easy? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, well, why are we putting so much faith in a, in a, uh, a culture that wasn't able to sustain itself? So. Those who always conquer aren't exactly always the smartest either. Just look at the kids who used to beat me up in high school. <laughs> well, we we got about five minutes left, so let, let's do some plugs here on what you guys have coming up. Now, uh, I mentioned here at the beginning of the show, Chris, you uh, you know you left the the weirdness of the paranormal uh, in the Bridgewater Triangle to go to probably the weirdest part of the country, if not the world, Florida. <laughs> so, uh, what do you, what do you have cooking down there? Are, are you doing much? Investigation into into the weirdness of Florida, or uh, or or you know, what, what are you up to? I guess. I guess I guess I'm I'm, uh, I'm admiring the weirdness from uh, from you know everyday teenagers, <laughs> just by you know I I, I think that um, I, I've gotten much more into kind of where I came from, which is telling the stories, exploring urban legends. So that's kind of the, the stuff that I'm going to. But I'm I'm also looking for new ways to present these stories. So that's kind of the stuff that I'm experimenting with now is, uh, you know, instead of just a straightforward book of ghost stories from a region that's kind of been done and done and done before, how are we going to do this? And and thank heavens Tim and I are kind of kindred spirits that I've able to find some kind of outlet for that kind of thing with uh, with the different things we got going on, Spooky TV through Spooky South Coast. But, you know, I've got, I've got much more kind of um, trying to plot the next original thing, I guess, is, is the best way to say it. And, and, and the whole time keeping my eye on those urban legends, they're really what drive me. Awesome, awesome. Any specific sort of like book projects in the works, or just you sort of waiting, like you said, for the next uh, the next thing to light your fire? You know, I've been doing a lot of of of, of <laughs> trying to. Well, the, the things that I'm really trying to work on right now are some uh, kind of graphic novelizations. Oh, cool. Of of connections between urban legends and uh, what might be true ghost stories. Um, I'm trying to right now we're write some screenplays, like some play, like uh, radio plays that we're going to be doing on Spooky South Coast. So those are the two kind of major projects I've been working on. But for the most part, sitting back and enjoying kind of what other people are doing while I'm kind of, uh, you know, in my laboratory trying to figure out the next original way to present this stuff. Awesome, awesome. And how about you, Tim? What do you have cooking? Obviously, Spooky South Coast, uh, that's... Have, have you guys started preempting the Red Sox yet? Because it, it really seems like it should be <laughs> oh, a, a given. 
I wish. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, like, there's no, no greater friend to, uh, you know, to some of this discussion than sitting there and waiting for these Red Sox games to get over because that's sometimes is where some of the, the, the most liveliest conversation about the, the forward movement of the paranormal comes from is just sitting around waiting for that final out. Uh, but uh, And I do want to say this before I, I go any further with what I have planned. I do want to reiterate, when Chris said that he's been spending his time observing uh, and, and watching teenagers, let's just reiterate that you are a teacher <laughs> so that people don't just think that you had to move to Florida because the state of Massachusetts made you. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I, I like to kind of keep moving forward with Spooky South Coast. Of course, I always have bigger and better plans for it. Uh, and then, you know, usually those don't pan out because <laughs> the radio station is not a willing partner all the time. But, uh, we do have plans of making things bigger and better this year and into, into 2013 as well. And I'm just really just riding this wave and, and seeing what the next, uh, level is on the horizon for the paranormal. Because to me, if it, if it doesn't change, it's, it's not going to stay interesting. And so it has to keep evolving. And uh, as it does, I, I like to see where, the audience likes to go with it. I mean, that's, that's the thing about our show. And as you know, doing, doing your show, you know, it's not about us. It's about what the audience wants to hear and what the audience wants to learn. And I, I continue to be fascinated, uh, by how much, uh, smarter and how much more, uh, they can get into the bigger picture of things. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The audience continues to amaze. I'm not just kissing ass here. I'm really always thrilled that they've come along on the ride and, and driven this in directions that I never would have thought to go in. So, you know, it's a great community altogether, and uh, we should definitely plug legendtrips.com. Uh, you got do do like a thirty second plug for that because uh, we we only got like two minutes left on the recorder. Sure. So tell, yeah, legend, tell us about this. Legend Trips is a joint venture between uh, myself and Jeff Belanger, where we actually take you out into haunted locations and give you the chance to experience them for yourself. They're kind of all inclusive. We get dinner, lectures, uh, hours of investigation with the spooky crew and with Jeff and. Uh, we do 30-odd minutes live taping in some of these, and uh, we give you equipment to use. And it's really just a, it's a fun time, and it's a good way for everybody to either learn about the paranormal or to remember why they first started getting into it in the first place. So we've got October 12th is uh, Supernatural Siege at Fort Tabor in New Bedford, and October 20th is Haunted History Night at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham. So both events are on sale at legendtrips.com. Nice, nice. I'm going to have to check out one of these legend trips sometime. Uh, oh, we'd love to have you. Get a feel for it. Well, on that note, I can't thank you guys enough for coming on the show, Chris, for coming back on the show, and Tim for uh, finally appearing on the program. I really uh, apologize that it's taken so long. I'll have to get you and the, and the spooky South Coast crew on here for uh, an extended conversation sometime in the future. And, folks, you really got to go out and pick up this book, Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf. This is the perfect time of year, obviously, for it. This is the uh, the Halloween season, and it will spook you out because it will have you looking at every little thing in your house and wondering uh, where it came from, who might have had it in the past, and whether or not they're still kind of hanging around keeping an eye on uh, that old lamp or the old chair or uh, any other sort of strange object. And, it, it, and if you're scared of dolls, this will definitely make you even more terrified. So it's a chilling book and a great read and full of awesome stories. So kudos to you guys, and thanks once again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having us on. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg for coming on the show and giving us so much time. You can find out more from them at the websites www.masscrossroads.com and spookysouthcoast.com. 
and you can pick up haunted objects via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere books are sold. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we just got one email this week because I'm trying to keep things speedy to get the program out to folks this evening. It comes from Ken, no hometown listed, here's what he has to say. Found your podcast by accident, but I am so glad that I did. For me, your best episodes deal with crime. Your cruise victims one is the best podcast I have ever heard. I would love you to do one on the serial killer cult that connects the Son of Sam and the Manson murders. I would also like to suggest one on little-known strange events, like the Toronto Tunnel Monster, Clapham Woods, any other strange but little-known events. In closing, more true crime tied to paranormal would be great, but I love the show and wish you the best. Thank you for bringing some young blood to Paranormal Radio. Ken. Wow. Thank you, Ken, for writing in. I appreciate your kind words, sir, about the program and the various off-the-beaten-path areas we explore. All the stuff you mentioned there sounds awesome. I would love to know more about the Toronto Tunnel Monster, whatever this Clapham Woods thing is, and serial killer cults. How can you not find that fascinating? As I kind of alluded to at the end of the last edition of the program, we are definitely going to be getting into more true crime stuff, more peripheral paranormal cases, as we have been doing the last few years on the show. It is really so much more refreshing than rehashing a lot of the famous cases in ufology and cryptozoology and even conspiracy Really, at the end of the day, I aim to make the program sort of a booyah base of the paranormal, featuring just about every possible ingredient you can find. Stay tuned, Ken, for definitely more true crime-slash-paranormal episodes of the program. Before I seal up BOA Audio Listener feedback for this week, wanted to both plug and use some stuff here from the Banal of America Facebook page. For those folks who have not yet heard, Benal of America is on Facebook. Just punch in Benal of America and you'll find us. Please like us. And on that note, we congratulate Cleta, who was our 800th like. And as I suspected, someone since then de-liked us. So another cat named Robbie says that he was the 800th like. And I checked and he was the 800th like after Cleta had become the 800th like. So, controversy surrounding the 800th like already. But congratulations to both Cleta and Robbie, who became the 800th like on the page at some point uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now we are sort of a hair over 800, and I guess the big number next is 900 or 1,000. So spread the word about Benal of America on Facebook and help us uh, increase those likes. I don't get anything for more likes, by the way. It's just... A ridiculous uh, rhetorical number that you just strive for, I guess. I will say, though, if you check out the Banal of America page on Facebook, I am often soliciting opinions from the BOA audio listeners for stuff like live guest suggestions and suggestions for theme episodes and stuff like that. So it is definitely a place for more interaction from the BOA audio listeners and a chance for me to cull the audience, for their opinions on where the program needs to go next. And it's also a place for feedback, such as this one from Sarah in New Smyrna Beach, Georgia, 
She just says, recently found your podcast, my new favorite. So thank you to Sarah in New Smyrna Beach, Georgia, for your appreciation and endorsement of BOA Audio. And on that note, we will close the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. Big thanks to Ken for writing in, and big thanks to Sarah for posting on the BOA Facebook page. One final note, I feel like I keep dragging this one on, but I should mention that for all the folks who have written to me in 2012, I sat down about 10 days ago and just locked in for an afternoon and answered every email I received in 2012. So I've caught up with a ton of you and heard back from many of you. Good to have these conversations going with so many listeners, and I'm sorry it took so long to write people back, but it has been really cool to hear from so many people over the last week or so after responding to their emails. And I really appreciate that many of them were really kind about the fact that it took me forever to write to them. Some folks I was writing back to had sent me emails like in February or March and even as far back as January. But they were really understanding about uh, the insane delay it took for me to write them back. I promise I try to write everybody back, and I'm even going to start digging into those 2011 emails that I may have missed to try and really clean out the BOA inbox and get back to as many folks as possible. So with all that said, here are the ways to get in touch with me for simple correspondence or a message you want to get on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button. Or if you're looking for something a little more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum, the U.S. of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of great folks there talking about the world of the esoteric as well as pop culture. Check it out. And, of course, we are on Facebook and Twitter, so just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I would be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. Up next comes the thanks portion of the program, so please allow me to extend gracious thanks to the BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me on the program, we have an all-new piece from Regan Lee, where she takes aim at skeptics, and we've got a new column from Leslie where she talks about bizarre encounters with mystery animals. Great reads, both of these pieces, and you can find them at Banal of America. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. I probably should have mentioned way earlier that I think I have a cold, so my voice is more scraggly than usual, but we will uh, keep going here. Because now comes the time in the program where I ask for donations. I'm a little trepidatious still about asking people to make donations since the delays between episodes have increased beyond our goal of 10 days per show. But if you can help us out and you want to make a donation, it would be greatly appreciated. The ways to do so are just go to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. Or you can mail a snail mail donation to Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 
1-800-242-01866. And you can find the full address at Vinal of America as well. And as you probably know by now, when it comes to the donations, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Vinal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of BOA Audio, we welcome back a longtime friend of the program for a long-overdue pure paranormal discussion, as our guest will be the amazingly prolific author and researcher Nick Redfern for an extended conversation about two of his most recent books, The Pentagon and the Pyramids, which looks at CIA and government interest in esoteric locations and objects. And we'll also spend the second half of the program talking about Nick's book, Final Events, which is a breathtaking examination of a potential group within the government that believes that UFOs and aliens are actually demons planning a demonic takeover of the human race. Just absolutely insane stuff in final events that completely changed my outlook on the world of UFOs. So, two tremendous topics, one amazing author, and really a thrilling conversation covering just a ton of ground and venturing into some very strange and at times troubling side roads as our good friend Nick Redfern makes his long-awaited return to BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks to Chris Balzano and Tim Weisberg for coming on the show Big thanks to Ken for contributing to listener feedback, as well as Sarah for posting on the BOA Facebook page. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners, the ones who stick with us through thick and thin and all the way around the bend. Thank you so much for your support of this program. Thank you for making BOA audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.